0: And welcome to Rise to Liberty. If you're tuning in, this is going to be the second time today. But that's uh, that's what we like doing here. So I am very honored to welcome my guest today. He is a man with an incredible resume. He is the former Libertarian Party of Utah chair and secretary. He's also the current Libertarian candidate for the secretary of Utah. The only candidate in history to run as a libertarian three years in a row. He's a tenured college professor from Utah Valley University. He's been elected to numerous National Libertarian Party positions. He's been a guest on over 900 radio stations, a devout husband and father. He's a man that I have grown to deeply respect and enjoy my time uh, that I spend with him. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Joseph Buckman, how are you doing tonight?
1: Well, I'm doing much better after that introduction. Wow, that's very kind. Uh, I am, however, running for the Utah State Treasurer. Oh, treasurer,
0: not the secretary. That's, that's right. All good. And, I knew I was um, going to screw it up somewhere.
1: It's okay. <laughs> this is a special election again. Normally, the treasurer would not be up for another two years, but the treasurer resigned. The government made an appointment. Next election cycle, then they go ahead and run an election. So we're kind of in an off term early election for treasurer normally be a four-year term so i went down and and paid the filing fee and then uh, discovered within a few hours that i had paid twice what the fee should be because it's it's based on the amount of salary that one earns over their time in office according to the laws of utah so i believe out of all the candidates running for state treasurer i'm the only one who noticed he was overcharged by the state of utah so I, I may have some fun with that. I have yet to go down there and pick up my refund. Uh, but, oh, I will, and, and I'll have some fun with that. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I only ran as a libertarian three years in a row uh, because of another special election, and that was when Jason Chafus resigned, and we had to have a special off-year election to elect a member of the United States House. Other, otherwise, it's kind of hard to run uh, as a libertarian year after year after year because of the two-year election cycles. But I did State House uh, or State Senate, uh, United States House and State Senate three years in a row. And I just I bought stickers to put over the yard signs just to change the office I was running for <laughs> <laughs> while keeping the same yard sign. But, um, but yeah, I do love liberty. Uh, I love uh, what the Libertarian Party uh, stands for on its founding principles. I don't love all uh, libertarians, but, but none of us do. <laughs> I don't think yep. there's anybody who loves all libertarians out there. Uh, but thanks for having me on the show.
0: Of course. It's honestly a great pleasure. So one one thing I, I like finding out about my guests is what actually brought you into libertarianism and what sold you on the ideas as soon as you said, yep, I'm
1: a libertarian. Yeah, it was one of those instantaneous conversions, um, which you hear about a lot. It, it just becomes self-evidently obvious. That this is the way I want to live my life. I, I don't want to initiate violence against anybody, not ever. Uh, I certainly retain the right to use violence uh, in response to someone attacking me, but I'm not even sure that's always the best path. Um, certainly, Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi uh, and others taught us the power of simple uh, nonviolent uh, confrontation with those who are hateful and hurtful. Uh, and then the idea of the right of self-ownership, that this, this meat bucket that I'm having a human experience on Earth in, the, this space suit for those who choose to live on Earth for a few decades, uh, is mine. This doesn't belong to someone else. Nobody gets to tell me what I can do with my physical body, what I can read, what I can eat, what I can drink, who I can have romantic relationships with. None about anybody's business. Not the government's. Not my neighbors. Nobody's. This is this is me. This is mine. That was a revelation to me: the right of self ownership, and then the non-initiation of aggression, and 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 those are hierarchical. So that uh, you know, absolutely no violence or force used against others, uh, and then whatever peaceful thing you choose to do with your own physical body, you can't choose to do things that that are hurtful to others, and I mean physically hurtful. Uh, And but I would include with that uh, drunk driving, you know, putting others at imminent needless risk or even sleep deprived uh, driving. I try not to do that because that's part of that non initiation of aggression principle that I want to take seriously. And I can remember like yesterday, uh, it was uh, I could probably find the exact date, but I know it was in August of 1977. Uh, I know it was on the campus of the University of Tennessee. I was uh, 19 years old, and I was having a conversation uh, with a friend at that conference about Robert Heinlein and the book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, And this is Heinlein's science fiction retelling of the American Revolution. But now the revolution is by the liberty-seeking people who are out on the moon, who are rebelling against the tyrannical uh, government that's based on the earth. Uh, and um, and they fight back to regain their liberties and one of the rallying uh, cries in that novel is the phrase tanstoffel i'm sure all of your listeners surely if they're tuning in know what tanstoffel means but just in case uh, it's the um, initialism for there ain't no such thing as a free lunch <clears throat> a lot of people seem to think there's a free lunch out there that that our representatives on Capitol Hill are just sitting on a, a hill that's made of gold. And if we could just get them to give it out more fairly, we'd all be a lot better off. Now, in any giving from government, there's a prior taking, uh, and, and then an incredible amount of inefficiency, and, and then maybe a trickle of giving and comes out the other end. So there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. So I'm having this conversation about that. August 1977, and uh, my friend says, you know, there's a political party that has Tan Stoffel as their flag. I said, well, that's it. I'm a member. Boom, I'm done. So I joined uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, I know I was getting fundraising calls by 1978, 79 from uh, Alex and Alexis, which I thought was interesting that one was a guy and one was a, a, a woman. Uh and I don't know if those were made up names for the purposes of fundraising or not, but I was putting money on a credit card, money I didn't have while I was an undergraduate student at Indiana University. And, um, and so I'm pretty sure I was a member of the party in 78, 79, 80. The earliest records that Robert Krauss, our operations manager in DC, who kind of keeps the whole party together. If you don't know Robert Krauss, you should get to know Robert That this guy. Uh, has been the longest tenured staff member there. Uh, so they can find me back to 1984 as uh, having a, a membership card. But I'm, I'm clear it was at least five years before that. And I don't know what your experience is in talking to other libertarians, whether people come into it kind of slowly or a period of time, or if it isn't more like a light bulb goes off and you go, wait a minute. Yeah, I, I don't think we should be enslaving other people. I mean, 100% taxation is by definition slavery, the taking of all of the productive effort of another human being without their consent. Uh, the taking of that at 100% is the very definition of slavery. And, and then you gotta ask yourself, well, what percentage am I okay with? Right now, from what I read, the people who are actually engaged in productive activity in the United States are taxed at about 50%. And then there's other people who aren't engaged in any productive activity, and God bless them. They're, they're children. They're the infirm and the elderly. They're people who suffered uh, horrible, uh, debilitating accidents, or who were born with birth defects. Yeah, we should take care of all of those people. Uh, but but they're folks who are who are taxed at zero, uh, pretty much right now. Um, and so uh, I just real when I realized that taxation is theft. Uh, that 100% taxation is the very definition of slavery, I became very comfortable and adamant about the only fair tax rate is zero percent. And, uh, you know, libertarians have to then defend themselves against the argument that, well, you know, we can't trust people to do the right thing if we have no taxation. We have to force people somehow to pay for national defense or things that are in their own interest um and i find that very undemocratic you know democracy is not just about voting democracy very cynical is, as well it's very cynical and it, and it and it's it's a, it's it's a fantasy people aren't good enough but we can somehow get a group of people that are better than that who can then you know use force to know that's given us $30 trillion in debt, a global footprint all over the world, wars without end. Just no, stop the crazy. Um, and perhaps if human beings aren't capable of, of uh, developing a little bit of wisdom, we probably need to learn from the consequences of those poor choices. The other stuff is just delaying the inevitability of learning from the consequences of those choices. Um, so I'm pretty sure and I don't remember with absolute clarity what all I was doing in 1977 or 78 or 79 or whatever. And I I was Joe Eagle scout, by the way, I I wasn't drinking. I wasn't in fraternities. I was interested in learning a lot. And, uh, I was working in radio, 1978, 79, uh, 80 WB WB Bloomington, 97 WB, um, and WTTS the AM station there. Um, and just busy working and studying and, and volunteering for a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, but I have never wavered from that commitment to non-initiation of aggression, right of self-ownership, property, responsibility, and the other things that fall out of that logically and naturally ever. I have wavered in my commitment to the Libertarian Party as an organization. I volunteered for the Andre Maru campaign and. 1991 and 92 and you know this is now ancient history but but the libertarian national committee in ann arbor michigan uh in the middle of that campaign held an emergency meeting of the lnc to consider removing andre maru as the presidential candidate and and you know they held a hearing kind of a trial and eventually decided i think almost unanimously if not unanimously not to do that. But there were people arguing crazy things like, look at all the earned media we could get if we chuck our presidential nominee and replace him with someone else. And the charges were, uh, in my view, absurd um, and, and the result of kind of a, a personal vendetta. So af- after the 92 campaign, I was pretty burned out. I'd also met my wife and we were in the process of being engaged and getting married and I actually moved to Salt Lake City, got married on July 27th 1993 and the libertarian national convention was right here in salt lake and i didn't go i don't even remember knowing about it i was that disconnected uh of course i had become a new husband and and a dad to two little girls that i inherited as as wedding presents their first dad had died when my wife was still pregnant with their second child her first husband's second child so um so i became an instant dad started a new job at that college but i don't remember in 93 even being aware that the libertarian convention was in town isn't that wild um got active again in the party when i got a call from my dear friend bill redpath uh bill was chair of the lnc uh several terms and he's the ballot access uh dynamo that uh, has gotten the party a lot of progress and getting on the ballot in a lot of states him and richard winger two heroes absolute heroes bill called me up and asked if i could help with a petition drive to get utah back on the ballot we had lost our ballot access uh in the 90s and um and so i said yeah i'd be happy to help out with that and then next thing i knew the state chair of the party at that time rob latham asked me if i would run for the united states house uh that was the first time in 2008 and then i did it again in in 2017. so i've been pretty active since i got out on the streets and started getting people to sign signatures to get the utah party back on the ballot i think that was in uh 95 or 6 somewhere in there <clears throat> and that's honestly
0: so interesting i i love hearing the the history of the party i I personally got interested in uh, the, the philosophy mainly because my, my main driving factor is truth, objective truth. And, of course, I was drawn to the fact that you shouldn't own people. Uh, consent is king or queen, you know, depending on how you look at it. And the the idea of consent, it, it was pretty instilled in me. Um, it it was just interesting it was kind of just a natural evolution my personal opinion is that libertarianism at at least how the the basic of the philosophy is the natural order of things and people just need to be reminded of that Uh, they need to break that government sanctioned programming that has been pumped into their skulls all the way from uh, you know, preschool all the way through twelfth grade. And um, it just makes so much sense, and it's easy and it's free to not cause harm to people. So
1: I don't and, know if you've already shared this in earlier episodes of your show, but if you haven't, or even if you haven't want to do it quickly, what brought you into libertarianism? what was there a a light bulb moment similar to mine? Um. So the the
0: first time I had ever heard Libertarian was Ron Paul. Um, that, that was, you know, my generation, my era. It was his first. Uh, well, not the first first because of 88 running as a Libertarian, but um, his second most recent run for president in 2008. I had actually seen a, a half page advertisement in high times magazine. Um, I think I was, I was in high school. I wasn't able to vote in 2008, but I was in 2012. And at that point, I thought it was political suicide to, uh, support and advocate for the decriminalization and legalization of marijuana. And I, I was blown away. Um, it was a little bit more important to me then than it is now um although i still stand by you know those uh, those beliefs that it should be both decriminalized and legalized um but then i started just diving into the philosophy um i had always been a reader uh question everything was pretty much how i was raised e- especially if you think that you're right you should definitely question yourself because then you get stuck in one of the two parties so it was pretty much just a natural evolution from how I was raised what you know my uh, anti anti authority attitude of being a, a young punk so um, that's really what brought me in and I just kept learning and kept chasing truth which is uh, actually why I started the show was to uh, chase truth and uh, not, not only bring people along my journey, but also discuss other people's journey as well. So that Very that's cool. really, that's really what brought me in. And, uh, last two years is what made me get involved with the party instead of being a small L. So gotta put my money where my mouth is at this point, you know? So. I, um,
1: I graduated from, um, Well, I was an undergraduate at Indiana University, and then the summer of uh, 1979, I got a job working at a TV station uh, behind the scenes doing videotape operations. And a videotape machine, broadcast quality, uh, back in 1979 was the size of maybe two full-size refrigerators, right? And the, the tape was two inches wide and on giant reels and and, and really, we were, you know, making video work with, you know, cutting edge technology that, that today looks like, a, you know, a Rube Goldberg crazy, bizarre <laughs> way of doing things. It was all analog. It had four heads on a spinning uh, uh, cam uh, that went something like 60,000 revolutions a second. And, and the tape went by there and you had to have a vacuum to keep it from just destroying the tape and the special oils and, and all sorts of analog electronics to try to get the signal to sort of look okay. Um, and I loved it. You know, I was like, hey, I'm on the bridge of the enterprise. Well, you know, the quality of the video out of your cell phone today is, I don't know, 50, 100 times greater than than what took a machine the size of two refrigerators and this thing can store the video. And and it's got the camera built in and the lighting built in and the sound. Now, this is nuts. Uh, so it was all, and those were half million dollar machines. They cost $500,000 each. But uh, one night, um, I think in the summer of 79, uh, we ran the Ed Clark for president uh, videos. So these were up against the uh, Johnny Carson Tonight Show. Uh, so not a lot of people watching. But the Libertarian Party nationally through the Koch brothers and and Ed Clark's fundraising was able to buy time uh, to run these 15 minute, I think they were 15 minute uh, ads called Alternative 80 uh, about how the Libertarian Party was now a legitimate thing. And so I first voted Libertarian for Ed Clark uh, in 1980. My first vote was 76, but I wasn't aware of Roger McBride at all. I'm not even sure he was on the ballot in Indiana. I voted for uh, Gerald Ford because I I thought the (laughs) non-elected guy would make the best president. I'd forgotten that. Uh, So I guess I was a little pre-libertarian. This was before the 77 conference. But yeah, I remember in 76 thinking, Gerald Ford is obviously not a politician. I mean, he kept stumbling and falling over and they made fun of him on Saturday Night Live. But I definitely wanted a guy who was... uh, Uh, Somebody who hadn't been driven to ever run for president. I thought that was the best qualification of all. But 80, (laughs) I voted for Ed Clark. And then I don't remember every election through the 80s. I I know I I still think Andre Maru was the most articulate of all of our presidential candidates. Um, His appearance on Larry King Live, which you can find on a couple of YouTube videos, Larry threw every hard question at him, and Andre just handled them beautifully. Uh, He had no Aleppo moments. (laughs) Uh, He had been an elected representative in the State House of Alaska. Uh, I think he was one of the the, uh, co authors of the bill that eliminated the income tax in Alaska. Uh, And so Andre had the political experience, and and he was very articulate. Uh, And so once your listeners are done tuning into this show, go Google Andre Maroon, Larry King. Uh, I think every candidate running as Libertarian ought to watch those videos. It's a great way to learn how to masterfully handle difficult debate questions. So, so one one thing I
0: wanted to uh, get into just a little bit um, was the, the work that you do with the National Party and the uh, historical side of things. But one person in specific, and that's Carl Bray. Would you mind introducing Carl Bray to my
1: audience? Carl uh, was a founding member of the Libertarian National Committee. Uh, He was in communication with David Nolan in the fall of of 1971 uh, and uh, helped create uh, that first convention in 72 in Denver. Uh, Carl had uh, prior to that been a tax protester uh, in the 1960s. And he was noted for, among other things, dressing up as Paul Revere, getting on a horse, riding the horse through Liberty Park. Here in Salt Lake City, there's (laughs) Liberty Park. And he would give out these Carl Bray dollars, which he said would be more valuable than your Federal Reserve notes, which ultimately would be worthless. Um, He uh, published a book called Taxation and Tyranny, more of a booklet. And he sold several thousand copies. And the IRS was not pleased. The Internal Revenue Service uh, was less artful to be kind in those days. And and imagine this happening today. I I would hope there would be a revolt. But what happened to Carl in, in 1971, 72 was the IRS went to his bank and seized his bank records. And uh, there was a f- federal law passed in the 60s that required banks to make photocopies of all the checks that went through their bank. And the IRS got the names and addresses of everyone who had purchased a book. The federal government went after people who had bought a book. Now, if this isn't a violation of the First Amendment, a gross obvious miscarriage of justice i don't know what is because then they started calling up the purchasers of carl's book and threatening them if you act on the advice in this book uh, we will audit you so i mean how do you respond to that well carl responded by suing them and, and uh upping the ante and um he had a uh precious metals company called the Rocky Mountain Mint and Depository um and he was uh, selling gold and silver products well on August 15th 1971 this was a Sunday night uh the ghostly image of Richard Milhouse Nixon appeared on televisions around the country most of them still black and white and this evil bastard, Uh, took the US off the gold standard, and imposed by executive edict, wage and price controls on the United States economy. Whatever you were being paid, that's what you're going to be paid. Whatever the price of a can of soup was in your store, that's what it's frozen at. Now, I remember this because my dad was a physician, uh, and he had his office in our house, he was never a physician out to make a lot of money he was a physician out to help a lot of people and he did a lot of uh, pro bono or charitable work he delivered a lot of babies he never got paid for um, my dad was a a brilliant man a uh, kind man he took his his career as a christian calling to do good in the world as did my mom who was a surgical nurse and i can remember my dad being outraged that, that his prices were now frozen and they were the lowest rates in town. Um, and, and he was very angry. So I remember August 15th, 1971. Well, Carl saw that uh, here in Salt Lake. Uh, and over in Denver, David Nolan and Susan Nolan, Hugh Futch, two other people, I'm not going to remember their names correctly, so I won't try, were gathered in uh, David's apartment on Lowell Avenue in Westminster, Colorado. And um, they said, that's it. We're done being Republicans. We're not, how can we be Republicans? We still had the draft. So these were people in their 20s. Uh, The Kent State shootings had occurred just a year earlier in Ohio, where the National Guard killed college students who were protesting the war in Vietnam. And, and, And now we've gone down the same economic path as the Soviet Union. No, we're done being Republicans. Uh, and over here in Salt Lake, Carl, <laughs> Carl Bray, God bless him, he responded to the uh, uh, wage and price controls with um, a full page ad in both the Deseret News and the Salt Lake Tribune, announcing that the Rocky Mountain Mint and Depository was raising the prices of its products by more than the federal limit in open defiance of the wage and price controls and the federal government could choose to act accordingly. It's one hell of an ad, full page. Um, And he was right, I think his arguments about why the income tax uh, should be seen as unconstitutional are spot on. Uh, And uh, yet, uh, you know, the federal government uh, is massive and with infinite resources and they wound up putting him in Terminal Island prison. Uh, uh, after he was convicted of these crimes of of uh, failure to file income taxes and and uh, open opposition to wage and price controls so I, I don't know over the course of my life and and i'm getting to the part of my life where i'm looking back on it more than looking forward oh the very nicely done um, the, i think the photo earlier you may be found on findagrave.com sure did of carl yeah pull that up again and then go to the other photos where that says there's four of them Uh, and, um, let's look at those photos too, but that's, that's his booklet, which if you noticed at the bottom, it was for sale for the price of one phony federal reserve (laughs) dollar. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Uh, But if you can get back to find a grave, I'm going to, I want you to pull up one photo there that, that I'd like to, to have you share with your audience. But anyway, so Carl was, Carl was of all the libertarians of that era, the least afraid of the federal government. He just kept poking it with a stick and um, and got a lot of supporters, uh, raised a fair amount of money to cover his legal uh, bills and then eventually his medical uh, issues as well. He died at a way too young age, 34, passed away of uh, insidious cancer in 1978. Some people think that the federal government somehow gave him that cancer while they held him in a cage. Um, I don't know. I've talked to his one of his attorneys from that time who believes that to be true because not only did carl get this exceedingly rare cancer but so did another tax protester who was held in the same prison at the same time they both get yeah so if you if you look at find a grave there's photos and it's a little green circle with the number four or maybe yeah just the arrow. there you go See so he's born on june 12 43 died before his birthday in 78 at the age of only 34. um Go one more over, and let's see if that's the one I'm looking for. No, it'll be the one after this. Yet yeah, one more. There I am at his grave, and this was while I was chair uh, of the Libertarian Party of of uh, Utah. And I don't know if you can zoom in on that, or, or your listeners viewers can simply watch it, but you'll find engraved in stone under his uh, death date, or uh, in the dark gray area there, on the what looks like the border, are the words the libertarian tax rebel yeah uh, and then uh, pan down if you can move see. the image up
0: nope it ain't working
1: nope. oh well but it's, well, it's it'll,
0: it'll be in the uh, episode description linked down well. below
1: and you you can read it at findagrave.com it's it's a little harder to read because it's on the darker granite so when i became chair uh when When I ran for chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah, and uh, Apollo Pazell, God bless him. Apollo's like, you'd be a great chair. You'd be a great chair. I'm like, I don't want to be chair. I don't (laughs) like Libertarians. I don't, you know, it's (laughs) messy. I like the philosophy. I like the, but man, and put it in practice and you get a bunch of, and he's like, no, you'd be great. So I went to the convention and I stood up and said, this is how I campaigned for chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah. And I recommend this highly. I began my campaign speech by saying I am not a libertarian. I am a philosophical, radical, voluntarist. And to the degree that the Libertarian Party is consistent with the principles of radical voluntarism, I support it. I am a fan. Uh, I am lit up. I love the Libertarian Party. Uh, it comes closer than any other party uh, around today and maybe ever, but it's far from perfect. <laughs> And to the degree that it doesn't consistently stand on principle for radical voluntarianism, I'm not a libertarian. I'm a radical voluntarist. And so if that's who you want as your chair, that's what I'll bring. And, and then I got elected chair. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, and I got curious, who were the chairs before me? You know, uh, And there was no list and, and no history I could find. And And so I contacted a few older chairs and I, I learned from Jim Dexter that we had had a massive history filing cabinet of stuff uh, that had been collected for the 25th anniversary of the founding of the Libertarian Party of Utah, an event that occurred in uh, 1997 on the 25th anniversary and that had gone to the state secretary's home and her home uh, had been stored in a garage and the garage had been broken into by homeless people and things were stolen. And then she set fire to the house and it all burned up. It reminds me of that Monty Python, you know, (laughs) that castle uh, burned down, fell over and sank into the swamp, but this castle, um, anyhow, (laughs) and it was just tragic. Uh, but I found a program for the 25th anniversary. Uh, and in the program, it listed, um, what they thought was the list of former chairs. I've since documented how some of that is, is just mistaken and wrong. And then I got uh, access to newspaperarchive.com and newspapers.com, two great resources for historical research, especially genealogical. And I had been using them to research my own family history out of Fort Wayne, Indiana with the Fort Wayne Papers. So I started researching Carl Bray. And um, he was writing letters to the editor uh, well before the party was founded by David Nolan, uh, so back into the 60s. Uh, he was the chair of the Weber State University Ayn Rand Study Group. He was the chair of Students for Objectivism, uh, some other self created titles. But in the summer of 72, he was identifying himself as the chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah, even before the founding convention or meeting, which occurred in uh, October of 72. We've got the exact date somewhere. So we're coming up on our 50th anniversary of being founded as a state party. But Carl, and and if you look through the Libertarian National News, you can find mentions of Carl for this brief period before he died. Again, he died in 78. For about a year before that, he had this horrible cancer. So he wasn't much of an activist after 76, Uh, but he was a very powerful force uh, through 1976 into 1977. Uh, He announced he wanted to run for chair of the Libertarian National Committee but the feds threw him in jail. And so he withdrew, uh, resigned from the LNC, didn't want to bring uh, attention to the LNC for having a felon as one of its members. He um, was in New York City for the 1975 convention that nominated Roger McBride. And justifiably so, Roger, God bless him, was that uh, elector for Richard Nixon, who in 1972 said, I cannot vote for richard nixon uh and he cast that one electoral college vote for dr john hospers the libertarian nominee and for tony nathan making tony nathan the first woman to receive a vote for president you know none of our votes in the states are for president technically what we're all voting for is a slate of electors and then the electors meet as an electoral college uh, and i think the design was for them to you know, look at the will of the people, but also look more carefully at the candidates and then vote their conscience. Well, Roger voted his conscience. So 75 comes around, and he gets the nomination for president uh, at the convention. And Carl Bray, uh, according to my friend Hank Hohenstein, and I think Hank might be misremembering, this is an area <clears throat> where I'm still doing research, but there were a couple of tax protesters uh, from Utah, both Carl and a guy named Steve Trotter. Who became, I think, the third or fourth chair of the state party? They both were refusing to pay their income taxes. They were both arguing that the IRS was unconstitutional. They had the support, by the way, here in Utah of a former Republican governor, Jay Bracken Lee, uh, who you can find out on YouTube videos and and in other books. Uh, he wrote the forward. The governor, the sitting governor of Utah, wrote the forward to a book by Frank Cheteroff called income tax the root of all evil that the income tax was going to be the the thing that took america away from our founding principles and toward economic destruction and socialism jay bracken lee as a sitting governor of utah in the 1950s refused to pay his federal income tax wanted to get his case to court and argue that it was absolutely unconstitutional for the federal government to use its taxing authority to take money from American citizens and give that money in part as foreign aid to other nations. That this was a gross violation of the Constitution. Uh, and of course, the IRS came in and just seized Jay Bracken Lee's bank accounts. But he was a sitting governor of Utah, refusing to pay the income tax and arguing that it was immoral and illegal. And uh, when Carl Bray ran, for the United States Congress in 1974 out of Utah, Jay Bracken Lee, former Republican governor, endorsed the Libertarian candidate for the United States House in Carl Bray. So um, back to the convention, I've jumped around and I apologize, but you know, take notes, there will be an exam later.
0: This is how (laughs) I lectured
1: when I was a college professor. It's not linear. It's designed to cause questions, get you to take notes, Want to look things up on your own? I guess that's what I'm doing here on your show again. There's not really a final (laughs) exam, though. But if you want, I'll write one. Uh, Anyhow, uh, Carl was in New York City. Roger had just gotten the presidential nomination. There was a lot of enthusiasm to have Carl as the vice presidential nominee. Maybe it was Steve Trotter. I've got conflicting information. We'll see. Uh, There's no recordings. I'm aware of that convention. But there's some written accounts. Uh, And Roger McBride went to the delegates Immediately after becoming their presidential nominee and said, if you give me a tax protester for my vice presidential running mate, I will return your nomination. I will not run with a tax protester as my vice presidential nominee. Now, he didn't tell the convention that until after they nominated him. So there was a lot of anger and upset and turmoil, you know, kind of like every convention. Uh <laughs> And uh, and so uh, the convention did not get its business done for that day. They didn't get a vice presidential nominee. They put it off till the next morning. And uh, Hank Hohenstein uh, got on the phone and called his friend in, in California, uh, David Berglund, and said, go get on a red eye right now. Get to San Francisco, hop on a flight, get to New York as fast as you can. You could have the vice presidential nomination tomorrow morning. And Berglund did that. Uh, he wasn't at the convention, but he flew out there for it. And uh, Carl Bray got up, uh, and if I'm remembering the written account correctly, calmed the convention down and said, Roger McBride is right. If if a tax propester would be the vice presidential nominee of the third largest political party in the United States, uh, that would be the whole focus of the campaign. It's going to draw attention away from all the other battles for liberty. It's just going to be focused on the fact that uh, I haven't paid my income tax in three or four years. And I'm I'm you know, uh, being sued by the feds and I might wind up in jail during the campaign. At any rate, um, there were efforts to nominate some other people, including Tony Nathan again uh, and others, but eventually uh, David Berglund came out of that convention as the vice presidential running mate and then as the candidate uh, four years later. Um, I think if Carl had not gotten cancer, uh, I, I think his time in federal prison was gonna be relatively modest um the charges against him were relatively bogus uh he eventually won the wage and price control uh, uh, charge because by the time they got him to court wage and price controls had gone away and i think everybody realized that's not good economics um (laughs) the other crime he had been arrested for was he was having these meetings of tax protesters at the Rocky mountain Mint and depository offices. And one night, uh, they uh, decided they would protest the income tax by doing something that had already been done in California, um, without any major consequence in California, but they, they had a meeting to do it here. And Carl was already on the IRS's radar for this taxation and tyranny pamphlet. And, um, they had printed up, I don't know how many, I'm imagining a few hundred, maybe a thousand, fake IRS tax seizure stickers. So if you're in trouble with the IRS and they decide to claim all of your assets, uh, they'll put a sticker on your house or on your boat or on your car says this property belongs to the IRS. And uh, so Carl was going to, get a team of people to go around Salt Lake, putting fake tax seizure notices on several hundred automobiles. Well, the IRS had a mole in the meeting. One of the people Carl trusted who was in the meeting was actually working uh, as an agent for the government. So the the meeting ends and Carl comes out and uh, three federal agents uh, throw him to the ground and handcuff him, put him in a car, and take him off to jail. They don't charge him with a crime for 14 hours. They put him in solitary confinement in leg irons. They haul him before a federal magistrate the next day, and Carl's like, what am I being charged with? I've done nothing wrong. And overnight, they had found a crime buried deep in the federal code for misuse of government insignia. Now, this was a crime that was designed to prevent people from pretending to be a colonel in the U.S. Army or an inspector or an FBI agent using a fake badge. Well, maybe that should be a crime. Maybe you shouldn't be pretending to be a federal agent if you're not one. But they stretched that to the the tax seizure sticker being an official government insignia. And they charged him with the crime of possessing them not distributing them, not doing anything that caused any upset for anybody. And that charge becomes even more absurd because the next day, the the print media in Utah ran a photograph of an IRS agent holding one of the fake IRS tax seizure notices such that everybody everybody who subscribed to the paper if that law was consistently applied, should have now been held guilty for possession of an IRS insignia. It's just a crazy crime. So I'd like to believe that had Carl not died um, in 1978, that he might've gone on to become chair of the Libertarian National Committee or perhaps even our presidential candidate. He, he, uh, in that brief period from 71 to 76 or so, Appeared on radio stations all over the country. Uh, You can find him in state party newsletters all over the country, appearing as the keynote speaker. Uh, One that comes to mind, I can still see the images, Libertarian Party of Texas uh, had him out there. I know he was on uh, WGN uh, in Chicago. Um, And he he was sought after. um, When uh, the convention was held in 1977 in San Francisco, he was asked by Nathaniel Brandon to give the introduction of of Nathaniel to that convention. Um, so uh, the more I learn about Carl Bray, the more heartbroken uh, I am that, that he didn't get to live a long and productive life and the angrier I am at the federal government. Can you imagine throwing someone into solitary confinement with handcuffs and leg irons over a crime of having a piece of paper They didn't want you to have
0: because it could be a threat
1: yeah i didn't know what the threat was at most it would have been kind of a burning man-esque performance art get people calling the irs saying why did you seize my car and they say no it's a fake sticker the other thing is the 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 real stickers were printed in color so they had red ink this was a like a, a 1970s version of photocopying it was in black ink only and the IRS could answer the phone a few times and said, no, that's a fake thing. And some people are out there engaging in their First Amendment rights to, to protest taxation. Uh, I, I get that you're upset, but you shouldn't be upset at the IRS. You should be upset at these stupid protesters. No, instead, they throw him in jail with no charge overnight. What is this? The Soviet Union. Uh, and then uh, uh, Judge Ritter was the federal judge here in Utah that heard this case and sentenced Carl to six months in federal prison for illegal possession of a piece of paper. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about Judge Ritter for a moment. And I know I'm getting kind of into the weeds, but this is part of the party history that, that absolutely fascinates me. Um, J- judge Ritter was insane. This man was nuts. He sued as a sitting federal judge both sitting United States senators from Utah. The United States Department of Justice went to the Supreme Court to get a writ from the Supreme Court prohibiting federal judge Ritter from hearing any cases in which the United States of America was either a defendant or a party in the prosecution. The Department of Justice Hmm. didn't want Judge Ritter hearing cases. When the Department of Justice did that, the state attorney general of Utah went to federal court to ask for the same uh, ruling be applied to any issues involving the state of Utah. This judge, to put it simply, was nuts. Uh, He was single. He was bitter. He was living in a hotel. uh, He was also in ill health. And one of the proofs to me that there is a loving creator a god a lord in heaven is judge ritter died of cancer about six weeks before carl bray passed away um i've bought his biography uh thunder over zion but it's just this whitewashed glorification of this guy and you know he was a talented law professor he was certainly a competent attorney but boy he got appointed to the federal bench and let his ego run wild and, and you can read the transcripts of him dealing with Carl. Uh, Carl accused the judge of being biased against him. He, he uh, tried to get him impeached, uh, and of course that didn't go over very well with the with the good judge. Uh, but but there's transcripts of the trial where the judge says something to Carl like, "I'm not going to let a young whippersnapper like you get away with these kind of things in my court." And, and uh, uh, there's another attorney unrelated to the Carl Bray. Uh, issue who filed a complaint against the federal judge because he, the judge was making hissing noises while this attorney was trying to present his case to the <laughs> jury. So what? the attorney stops and says, "Judge Ruder, what are you, do you You got a problem? Are you up you know there hissing?" And he says, "No, you just remind me of a snake." And then he kept making hissing noises while this guy was trying to present his argument to a jury. One more, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes who you know are you too young for 60 minutes and no it it was a big deal network television investigative news program in january of of 1978 uh, so just a couple months before ritter dies and about six months before carl dies 60 minutes did an expose on judge ritter (laughs) and interviewed a reporter for ksl tv who basically said, yeah, the, the LDS church does not want any of its cases heard in front of Judge Ritter either. Um, so Carl Carl got dealt a pretty bad hand, both, both with this outrageous charge that I don't think anyone... Uh, the, the news coverage of the Times says nobody had ever been charged with this as a crime ever before, illegal possession of a government insignia. I don't think anyone's been charged since under that statute. It was just Carl... It was a made up charge. There wasn't much he could do about it. He got a crazy federal judge. And, and the result of that was he had to spend six months in in federal prison, including at Terminal Island off the coast of California. Boy, I, you know, I, 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 I might actually invite your listeners to stay in touch. Let's all get together. I want to go up to that cemetery outside of Heber City, Utah and um, visit the good judge's grave up there, uh, Willis uh, W. Ritter. And, um, well, I won't tell you exactly what I want to do when I get there, but you can probably imagine. Meet us up
0: there. You'll find uh, out.
1: I would, uh, yeah, let's have a party. Well, I'll go up there and, and we'll let Judge Ritter uh, experience the kind of treatment at, uh, uh, from us that, that he gave to Carl. We can find a way to manifest that and a symbolic and appropriate and Performance art-based, non-initiation of aggression, but a response to what he did to Carl. I I mean, it's just, it's a tragic story. And that was our founding chair. And yet here it was in 2017, I became uh, chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah. And um, I'm not aware of anybody in Utah that that knew any of this history at that time. Uh, Somehow we forgot about Carl. Now, the state of California, where Carl also lived and and where his wife, Donna Noble, was, and and they were engaged in protests in California as well. Carl also was credited by uh, uh, the California Party with getting John Hospers on the ticket out there, I think, or maybe it was McBride four years later, but he did a lot of signature gathering and all that. The Libertarian Party of California still gives its uh, Volunteer of the Year, uh, the Carl Bray Volunteer of the Year Award. So California remembers Carl uh, more than more than Utah did, even though this is where he grew up, uh, went to BYU briefly, Weber State, uh, and uh, uh, so I'm I'm spending some time bringing Carl back into the consciousness of everybody in the party here. Did that video? You can link to it if you want off my YouTube channel. Yeah, it's called the the first Libertarian martyr, uh, and it's uh, a found audio of Carl. Uh, giving an interview, quality of the audio was terrible, cassette tape recorded under the landing pattern at the Indianapolis airport, I think, with squeaky chairs and off mic. But I, I got about 20 good minutes of audio out of that, processed it, and then I tied the video to uh, newspaper headlines. Uh, Carl had thousands and thousands of newspaper headlines. Now, sometime it was the same story that's repeated across 300 papers in every town across America. So that's fun to dig through on newspaperarchive.com, uh, but uh, but he's probably got I don't know 40 letters to the editor that I'm working on transcribing all of them, uh, and then probably at least a hundred, maybe 200 unique newspaper stories about his battles with the federal government uh, and his uh, performance art dressing up as there's a newspaper that actually has a photo of him on a horse with the tri-corner hat on as Paul Revere giving out his Carl Bray dollars.
0: You know, who who would have known that uh, Sleepy Little Utah was so based? <laughs> you know, it's that that's one reason why I wanted to get you on and tell this story, because when once I had first heard it, uh, we had uh, attended that evening at your house, uh, an evening with Scott Horton. And hearing that story, it, it, shan- it, it sent chills down my spine.
1: Yeah, you saw and... the alpha version of that video. I, I had just thrown a few little things together to kind of do a proof of concept. But I, I think in some ways that was more powerful because I only had the headlines for the first third. And then we sat in my home theater just listening to Carl's voice pretty much in the dark. Yeah. And um, I don't know about you, but I, but I cried. I uh, Yeah what happened to him is so unfair and so antithetical to the principles on which this nation was founded uh, that I, I i just i don't know i fear for our future um the federal government's certainly out of control its spending is a nightmare and now you know we're seeing the results of that with the high inflation and and there's probably more of that to come but i'd like to think that the feds could not do this kind of thing again that that if they tried to do wage and price controls there would be a revolt if they tried to bring back the draft there would be a revolt if they tried to to shoot another student with the national guard pointing live weapons at college kids that 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 there would be a revolt i'd like to think that's the america that i live in but boy we sure tolerate a a lot of tyranny um, that just people actually defend you know all we need Somebody, I mean, I have a daughter who's a medical doctor and I try to talk to her about free market medical care. And, you know, she didn't study economics in college. She studied medicine and she's like, well, the federal government has to do something. We've got to take care of people. (laughs) Well, the federal government's
0: the wrong way to do it because all they know is violence.
1: I want to take care of people too. I want I want Mm -hmm. an economy that, that, thrives because of minimal taxation, and out of that creates innovation and charitable activity that that really do provide state-of-the-art medical care for free, you know, to everybody uh, who uh, can't afford it or, or deserves it or whatever, but it's it's with local charity you can discern who needs a, a helping hand and who needs a kick in the butt. But when, when you do it from the federal government down, there's no discernment of the difference between those those two. Um, I'd like everybody to be educated for free, funded by charity. And you know, that's that's kind of happening. Your channel is, is an example of that. Um, I wrote back 20 years ago, I was teaching at Western Governors University and I, and I wrote something about how YouTube was gonna be the educational platform of the future. And man, I got hammered youtube it's just cat videos and (laughs) zoo videos well one of our other daughters um uh, uh, became a biotech uh, genius and married married a guy and moved to san francisco and her husband uh, has a youtube channel with four million subscribers being translated into at least a dozen other languages for free by volunteers just makes his money off patreon and what he's done is visualize math. So he animates graduate level math and visualizes it.
0: That's incredible.
1: And it's called 3Blue1Brown, 3Blue1Brown.com. And, um, and he's got graduate students all over the planet that are, you know, if you're a visual learner, then this is the place for you. Maybe there's other math students who don't learn it visually and, and they find other resources which is fine but um uh i see some of his fan mail and he's got you know youtube viewers writing him uh, i didn't think i could ever understand this i was failing my math class i watched your videos i got an a on the exam my t- professor pulled me into his office because he thought i had cheated i showed him your channel and now he's using it in class so that's incredible the competition on youtube for viewers is going to get the best educators the biggest audience because democracy right this is democracy. it's not just about voting it's about people voting with their feet or with their eyeballs and if you can create value and grant's doing it for free right i think he gets a couple hundred grand every time he puts a new video up i don't know he doesn't talk finances with his father-in-law but it's for free it's whatever money he's making is maybe off of advertising uh, or off of patron donations or simply people who go, wow, you're making a big difference on the earth. I want to give you some money. Um, and he's one of what hundreds of thousands of YouTubers who are trying to educate <laughs> us. So today, if, if I have a problem with my 1998 road Trek RV, and I need to figure out how to clean the, the propane tube on the back of the refrigerator. And I'm not sure how to get it out of the van. 25 years ago, you'd have to go to a library or find a mechanic or some hidden away tech manual somewhere. Today, go on YouTube and there's like six or seven people who've pulled their fridge out and they all have a video on YouTube about how to do it.
0: Yeah. You know? YouTube University. Yeah. Yeah. It, it It's honestly incredible. And that's why this whole uh, attitude of well, we need the government because people won't donate money or anything. And it's like, have you seen what people do when they are able to just be free and can innovate things? We are in, we, we are capable of incredible things if we're just allowed to do so. Right. I, I really like your analogy of, you know, 100 percent taxation is slavery. Well, through historical examples, you can see when government is maximized to its top level the most amount of people die possible in just the most horrific and violent ways possible yeah don't
1: don't tell me i'm not someone who deeply cares about the well-being of others because i want to eliminate forced taxation and most government programs Exactly. No, I, I want free education for everybody. I, I want state-of-the-art medical care where innovation and development of new technologies and drugs and therapies is rewarded hugely. So we get more of that. Instead, it's punished. And, you know, I used to talk to my dad, who was also a physician, but he was a Roosevelt Democrat. You know, we need government and social security is a good thing. And we should have dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And all these interesting conversations with my dad, but and and you know, and he was a guy who was giving a lot of it away. Um, really good guy. Now I'm going to forget the point I was going to make uh, about uh, about medical care, medical innovation. Um, I, I have gotten lost, but a similar point that's in the ballpark of that was my dad and I would talk about how if we had federalized, socialized health care, at the time the nation was founded he'd still be using leeches on people right we're we're not rewarding yeah. innovation oh i know what i was going to say the conversation with my dad people argue that healthcare costs are out of control right and there's lots of evidence for that you know the inflation rate of prescription drugs and Uh, hospital stays and all that. Well, it's largely because of the federal government. They limit the number of medical schools. They limit the number of people who can be admitted to medical school. If you want to build a hospital, do you know what you have to go through for government permitting to decide to have a new hospital in some location? It's ridiculous. Um, But in my view, the cost of medical care has come down dramatically. No Rockefeller, no Carnegie, uh, no president could get an MRI for any amount of money in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s. You want to go get an MRI in the 1960s, you barely get an x-ray. So yeah, an MRI costs 100 grand or something, but it used to cost infinite amount of money. Infinite down to 100 grand is a reduction in cost It became available. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we don't look at it that way you look at it like oh it costs a fortune and we need the government to stop it course costing a fortune so the government comes in and tries to disrupt the market forces that have created these new technologies and what they do is extinguish them that no at least in my view is very uncaring for others a libertarian and, and libertarians do a poor job of this I, I was talking to a libertarian candidate running actively and they wanted me to consult them about their campaign. And I'm like, I'm just going to run on the message that we need to get the libertarians in charge so we can be left alone. We just want to get the federal government out of our pocketbook, out of our bedroom. We all want to be left alone. And I said, well, that is the least inspiring message that a libertarian can offer. I get where you're coming from. I get your passion for it. Yeah. I want to be left alone too, but no, more than that, I want every kid on the planet fed. I want every kid on the planet, every adult, to have a safe place to sleep at night. I want everyone to get an education. I want everyone to get state-of-the-art health care. I want to give them to whether they can afford it or not. And the only path I see to living on a planet that does that for others is one where productivity is rewarded and taxation is seen as theft. And... Uh, don't tell me I don't care about others because that's the path that I see leading to that kind of abundance where maybe wars could end because there's just nothing much left to fight over. We're all pretty well off, you know, Yeah, that's what, that's what I want. And, and that candidate I was talking to went, that's right. It was another one of those kind of like light bulb moments of that's the message libertarians ought to be offering. Learn some economics, and you'll see that that if you punish productivity with onerous taxation and permitting and regulation and prohibitions, uh, eventually you get less productivity, less innovation. Yeah. Um, and um, and what we need is more of that because listen, the medical care we have today, hopefully seen from two hundred years from now, is going to look as horrifying. As, the, as what they did to, to George Washington. Yeah, give him shots of mercury and, and let the femur, let the, the how would they call him? You had to open the veins to let the noxious gas. in. Yeah, they killed him. Yeah. Best doctors in the world totally killed him. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think that's the case today. I was just talking to my daughter yesterday because she called me on Father's Day. And I said, listen, how much of what you learned in medical school is already obsolete? And she says really interesting questions and most of the drugs that I learned about in medical school for treating diabetes are no longer recommended. There's all sorts of new therapies out there. Yeah. And I said, I said, you know, I think in your career, maybe not in my lifetime, but I think in your career you will have returned to the pharmacopoeia of what physicians have access to cannabis and psilocybin, especially for end of life care and anxiety and PTSD and suicidal ideation Our federal government scheduled one cannabis. A drug with no potential or current Mm -hmm. medicinal value. Well, that's a lie. Yeah. it's a self-evident hypocrisy. This was Nixon's racist war on the anti-war left. They smoked pot. We can't go after them for being opposed to Vietnam, but we can throw their ass in jail for smoking pot.
0: 51 years ago today. Was that today?
1: Today, yep. Yeah, that guy. Waging price controls and the war on drugs, and it's not a war. It's not a (laughs) war on drugs. It's a war on innocent people who use a drug to no ill effect. Um, You know, and I'm sure you know this, but I'll repeat it anyway. We have more young black males held today behind bars in federal cages than were held at the height of slavery in the United States. More young black males, nonviolent crime, dealing pot. You mentioned Dr. Paul earlier and I love me Dr. Paul. I, I voted for him in 1988. I attended the Mises Bash uh, in, uh, in Reno where Dr. Paul spoke. I sat in the front row, got up and left before his speech was over because I had somebody else waiting to meet me across the way and it was running way late. But I watched the video of that speech later, and I watched Dr. Paul's performance in those Republican primary debates. And, you know, Dr. Paul said, uh, Gary Johnson was going around saying, well, we just need to legalize cannabis and everything else should stay Schedule 1. I'm like, oh, Gary, (laughs) you panderer. Dr. Paul said, why do we have laws outlawing heroin? How many of you in this audience are going to go out and use heroin tomorrow because it's legal? Do we really exactly. think the reason people in America aren't using heroin is because the federal government said don't? No. When you prohibit something, you drive interest. More people are using heroin because it's illegal because that puts a big light on it for folks who are attracted to do the thing that's forbidden, right? Yep. Pro- prohibition did not work for alcohol. And it seems we learned nothing from that. But, you know, when alcohol prohibition went away, there was a big law enforcement force. They need to find something to keep them employed. And they gave them the war on drugs eventually. but prohibition didn't work in the war on drugs. It's not working today. You can't keep drugs out of our federal prisons, for God's sakes. We're supposed to turn the whole country into a federal prison to try to keep... No, it's not working. Didn't work for alcohol prohibition. And get this. It didn't work for the Lord God Almighty with the Garden of Eden either. Right? Of that tree right. ye shall not touch. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm real curious what that tree's about now. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was Come the on. one tree that was touched.
1: <laughs> it's just so self-evidently yeah. stupid. But I think beyond the stupidity is a real organized set of individuals or forces that that use that to their advantage for whatever anti-liberty, nefarious power grubbing uh, orientation they have to life that 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 is not one that that I've had anything to do with since that moment where I first heard about a political party that had ten Stoffel on its flag
0: <sighs> so one one question I had for you because I'm I was I've been thinking about it ever since we had uh, decided to do this and you know, I, I don't really talk internal party politics on my show. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's it's the, the only people who care are libertarians, and even most of them don't care. So considering how things are now, what you know about the history of the party, how you feel personally. At this point in time, should people join the libertarian party? Are we going to be moving in a great direction? And I know some of this is yet to be seen, but.
1: Well, I, and I don't know where you are. Are you a Mises Caucus loyalist? Is that what brought you in two years ago? Ron Paul Revolution 2? Um,
0: I mean, I'm, I am I Mises Caucus. Um, That's okay. However, um, I, I definitely, if I disagree with something, I'm not going to just go with it because I'm going to say I disagree with it.
1: That was my impression of a lot of Mises people in Reno, not all, maybe not even most. I did walk past a couple of delegates who had just arrived and said, wow, now that I'm here, I just can't wait to be told what to do. I almost (laughs) stopped to go, what? That is like the most anti-libertarian thing I think (laughs) I've ever heard. You just showed up to be told how to vote? But I kept walking. I know there were delegates there who had no idea what NOTA stood for or why that's required on our ballots. And you think, well, this yeah. is a very well-organized, very effective takeover that took a fair amount of money that people never imagined somebody would spend to take over the Libertarian Party. Um, I'll tell you what I'm tired of. Um, Name-calling, for one. Um, I have a good friend who thinks I'm worse than the Mises Caucus. I'm the German in Germany who didn't stop the Nazis when they were taken over because they (laughs) hadn't done enough bad stuff yet. And I should have Mm. stood up. I'm part of the old guard of the Libertarian Party that didn't fight to keep the Nazis from taking over. Okay, I'll own it. I'm the worst Libertarian ever. Fine. I got it um as far as i know nobody i've met in the mises caucus is even remotely a nazi um our vice chair says some things that i find disgusting and horrifying um he just posted a thing about needing a flag uh in his front yard for pride month that that had the symbol of of this (laughs) somehow to advertise to his neighbors that he was a heterosexual and not a homosexual i'm sorry he needs more gay friends gay pride is not about sex it's about liberty loving individuals who were persecuted and threatened with death and and housing discrimination and job discrimination over who they choose to love and it's about a lot more than just sex i I got gay friends who are are more solid in their marriage than i've been you know in mine um and Cindy and I, you know, coming up on 30 years and we're hanging in there, but being married is hard. And, and I, I have um, a friend in Louisville, Greg Burke, uh, and his husband, Michael, whose last name I forget. Uh, they, they're the plaintiffs in Kentucky for Burke versus Bashir, demanding the right to gay marriage. Greg Burke and his husband, Michael, were present in the Supreme Court when the ruling came down, granting equal rights for marriage to gays and Joe Bishop Henchman was there as well. Uh, and, um, so I have two friends who were in, in the Supreme court for that decision. So, so yeah, what the vice current vice chair of the libertarian national committee is putting out. I'm not a big fan of, of some of that, but you know, I'm also a pretty hardcore free speech guy and let the chips fall where they may. Um, when you look back at the, at the history of the party though, um, This isn't really, I think, nothing new. Uh, Mises may be better organized and better funded and more articulate than any other uh, effort, but David Nolan, the founder of the Libertarian Party, was not at all happy with Ed Clark as a presidential candidate, not at all, and and felt like they had abandoned the party of principle uh, to compromise and pander uh, to, to economic conservatives. It's 1979. The party wasn't even a decade old yet. And, and David and And, <laughs> and others, he was already
0: being a libertarian then.
1: <laughs> yeah, they formed the December 11th group, a, a shadow LNC. December 11th was the founding date, December 11th, 1971, Colorado Springs, where they voted to, to found a new party, uh, put out a press release in January, had a convention the following June. There's all sorts of dates you could say, well, this is where it started. But but less than ten years later, you got the founder of the party creating an alternative to the LNC, and 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 there were arguments back then, like the ones with Andre Maru. If we remove Ed Clark as our presidential nominee and replace him, we'll get more earned media by putting up a pure libertarian. Where's the <laughs> pure libertarian? Maybe Ron Paul. I don't know. Um, so in that sense it's nothing new i i jeremy kaufman running for the united states senate up in new hampshire dressed in a lizard costume really dress for the job you want not the job you have and i want to be a senator and they're all lizard people so i'm going to dress as a lizard
0: it's no different than uh being naked on stage or a boot on your head
1: wasn't too happy with either of those uh either me either Uh, but I'll tell you what, I'm more offended by Bill Weld being a vice presidential nominee than any of that. That also upsets my friend. Bill Weld was the most libertarian governor ever. All right, great. But you don't get to come into the libertarian party as a non-member and instantly go to vice presidential candidate. Just no, no, I did not vote for Bill Weld in Orlando. And I had this good friend screaming at me on the floor of the convention, uh, there's no prohibitions on language here, right? Shall I use the direct nope. quote? Fuck you, Joe Bookman. <laughs> Fuck you. Just as loud as you could. And I'm like, you've already won. You're gonna get weld. Um and they had done some delegate stacking then. They they gotten uh they got some people in there to be sure Weld got that nomination. So I I don't see that as different in anything other than the magnitude for what Mises pulled off in Reno. Um, Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine was conducting a bunch of interviews, and he asked me to sum up the convention. Uh, This was after it was completely over. I was getting ready to take a friend of mine back to the airport. And he said, just sum up the convention in one or two words. You know, how do you feel? And I said, uh, vigilantly curious. Vigilantly curious. Um, I, I, uh, I told the Utah State Convention, if you if you choose to have me serve as one of your delegates to the convention, um, I don't know who I'm going to vote for for chair. I'll listen to the chair's debate and decide. And then for the rest of the office positions, I want to give, I will give my vote to whoever that chair wants as, on their team, uh, even if that's Karen Ann Harlos, who um, I think has no business being anywhere near uh, 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 any position on any board of any organization. <laughs> so Yeah. Do, do Libertarian Party history, was a founding member of that historical preservation committee, and uh, and don't play well with Karen Ann Harless That would be me. <laughs> I, I'm the guy uh, who uh, was entrusted with uh, digitizing all of David Nolan's personal files. Uh, out of that, I got to know Elizabeth Nolan really well. Uh, learned that she had tried to donate the files to MIT, and MIT turned her down. She really wanted them to go to an academic uh organization karen ann knew all of that Uh, but karen ann wanted those papers shipped over to uh, denver as soon as they were digitized and instead i reached out to the library of congress and they acquired the collection and elizabeth is thrilled and i'm sorry if if your viewers want to disagree with me i know karen ann does but i happen to think the library of congress is a better place to preserve history than the storage shed that the libertarian party is paying for over in denver just wild, crazy thinking on my part. I went to a member of the LNC in Reno and said, "What do you think about all that?" And he said, "Well, Joe, uh, this is somebody who was on the <clears throat> LNC and and currently still sitting on it, which I think leaves you with two or three people." Um, he says, "Well, Joe, the Library of Congress is a federal agency. I'm I'm uncomfortable having party records preserved by the by the federal government. You know, they're, they're seeing all of our." our our secret files and i said well it's rich bowen we'd served together on the audit committee i said rich if you think the federal government learned anything new about the libertarian party from david (laughs) nolan's personal files 12 (laughs) years after he had died i want to know what you're smoking because i i'm getting old i want to try all these drugs what can you recommend (laughs) and he's like yeah good point i said but you have an even bigger error and what you just said do you see it And he said no what are you talking about i said they were not party property they were elizabeth nolan's cherished inheritance when she became a widow they went to where she wanted them to go they didn't belong to the party and he's like well yeah that's a good point point." and then after i did that thing uh, i i i found the the Boilerplate letters she had prepared to a number of universities and to the Library of Congress. She had done that before I ever met her. Uh, And I learned that David Nolan's father, John Lester Nolan, uh, had adopted David and adopted his sister Barbara. This, This couple took in two kids. God bless them for doing that. And um, John Lester, Nolan's career was as the director of the reference division of the Library of Congress. David's files went back to his daddy's library. David's sister, Barbara, who goes by the name Ekta now, uh, is just thrilled. Who are you that you got my brother's papers to our daddy's library? I'm like, I'm just a nerd. But boy, I got some people <laughs> angry at me, including Karen Ann over that one. But I, I'm sorry. i sorry, I will go with the library that's housing thomas jefferson's books as a part of the federal government that if libertarians and a libertarian utopia were to take over i'd like to think that the bricks housing thomas jefferson's books would be the last bricks we would choose to dismantle and i've also provided people who are concerned with the link at the library of congress website where you can make a private donation for the library of congress to take its work to another level. They don't survive only on tax money. They also solicit uh, voluntary contribution. So let's make the Library of Congress a completely non-taxpayer-supported voluntary institution so we can all be happy. The other thing I was hoping, and I've kind of given up hope on this, was since the convention in 2024 is in D.C., I would have liked to have seen some sort of Library of Congress gallery display of early Libertarian Party history that delegates could be invited over to the Library of Congress for, or the Dr. Uh, David Reft, the guy I work with at the library, uh, mentioned the library might be willing to bring over a display case to the convention center and provide some uh, docent-like people there to uh, share what they have. And so they'll have about a year to go through the accession process now before before that convention happens, year and a half, maybe what was what question was i answering now i know i've gone way down some tangent <laughs> i don't even remember it is
0: really so i i guess i'll boil the question down with oh with the takeover well less about the takeover and more about your personal opinion of is the party are are you still looking forward to tomorrow to be calling yourself a libertarian Mm. I mean, as cautious as you may be, are you at least hopeful?
1: Um, well, see, I've or... never called myself a libertarian. I'm a phil- philosophical, yes, radical voluntarist. We did cover that. And so am I uncomfortable being branded a libertarian? Yeah, kind of. But, but that makes me angry because it's due to distortion by the other parties and the media. We are not uh, what they paint us to be uh, at their worst painting of that, clearly. So I think, yeah, I'll own libertarian because screw you for making it mean something it doesn't mean. Um, I'm not a racist. I'm not a I, I'm not a Republican who wants to smoke pot. just go away. <laughs> you don't have a clue what's going on here. Just stop. Um, and yet I'm also disturbed by things like the 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 message that the vice chair was sending out on on Pride Day or Pride Month or whatever. I, I think kind of missed the point there. Um, Michael Heiss. Uh, interview with Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine. Nick says, Michael, uh, let me read you this quote. And it was something like, every state that Mises has fucked loves our dick now. Yeah,
0: that 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 gets this dick, loves it. Yeah.
1: What is he thinking? <laughs> um, I You know, I, I want to call Phil Lammy, who's, you know, my neighbor here in Alpine. I think he's in the bishopric of the Mormon church. I'm like, are you okay with that? Do I misunderstand Mormons? How is this rape metaphor uh, a good idea? On the other hand, I had a nice conversation with Michael for about a half an hour. I congratulated him, you know, on his efficiency. Told my friend that. He's like, the Nazis could run the trains on time too. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty
0: creative at that point.
1: (laughs) But, I mean, at the end of that interview with Nick Gillespie of Reason, uh, Nick says, well, what do you what do you want to tell people who are concerned about Mises? And he just says, judge us by our fruits. So that's very much where I am. Um, maybe I'm compromised. Maybe I'm unprincipled. Maybe I should walk away and spew vomit in my path like Joe Bishop Hinchman, and Andy Craig and others have done. People I respect, by the way, I think Joe Bishop Hinchman's done more to advance liberty than the Libertarian Party ever has or can hope to that guy gets into the supreme court and argues for liberty in powerful ways andy craig deep thinker cato writes brilliant stuff but man are they out to burn the party down now or so it seems to me i am not that uh i'm not on i'm not in misis going yeah we need ron paul revolution too can't we find some young people i mean my goodness they're like trump's gonna get reelected in 20 20- how does trump get reelected in 2024 he's like 110 years old and in ill health <laughs> and and biden's thinking about running why what don't we have anybody under the age of i don't know i'm 64 maybe you could find a 60 year old or a 50 year old and so i kind of feel the same way about ron paul um it's like uh aren't there any young guys out there I and then Justin Amash I, I, I'm i impressed that Justin is hanging in there I think if Justin can hang in there through this uh, uh, so can I uh, and he's basically said the same thing as let's let's see what let's see him perform right they earned the positions they got elected to um, and uh, uh, I, I'm sorry I'm just uh, going down a tangent in my own head which I guess I'll share uh, I think Karen Ann got that position through fraud. She was not a whistleblower. I was on the investigative committee for New Hampshire. This was not whistleblower retaliation throwing her off that committee. She called she called the other members of the board rat fucks and YouTube videos and put up videos about each of them. You can still go watch. her. She just condemns them all for their massive corruption. No, just no. But it was it was a great card to play to get get reelected. But and now we'll see. You know maybe maybe she's she's grown from that experience and won't so easily slander people like me and others. I mean I'm the the elder abusing psychopath who stole party property to give it to the feds really? That's what I did. All right, I'll own it. that's great uh, it's because it's so absurd right and it, and it was equally absurd uh, some of the things that were said in in her uh, her uh, uh ability to fully articulate a massive victimhood environment that that created sympathy among people who don't know her as well as they should but by and large i mean yeah you know they got elected they earned it they got the people there they got the enthusiasm there they got money behind it uh i voted for angela because i thought steve Dosbach was terrible in that debate (laughs) joe hopman oh my goodness
0: that wasn't a debate
1: (laughs) I um uh, and yeah, you know, I caught a lot of crap for that. But what I didn't understand about Mises was uh, your new chair came out and asked for Eric Rodsep to to be the detailed oriented guy she needed as vice chair, and y'all gave her uh, uh, Joshua Smith instead. Um, and well, I was vo- I was voting for Eric because that's who the chair wanted, and that's what I said I would do. Um, so
0: I, I believe that uh, the the caucus a large portion of the caucus anyways, enough to get the vice chair elected uh, is more more than enough evidence that it's not necessarily take these orders and do as we say. <laughs>
1: um, well, I think Nick Sarwak uh, and those who realized they had lost so horribly threw all their votes behind Justin to try to throw a monkey rich into the new board and screw yeah. that. Um, I I think if it hadn't been for the anti-Mises people kind of united around giving them back this somewhat crazy vice chair that maybe Eric would have won and they were angry at me for not going along with that strategy and and angry at me for not going along with the strategy of let's try to run the clock out so we don't lose the abortion plank you know I I don't I don't play those kind of games I guess Um, maybe I've become unprincipled and, and i'm not a good warrior and uh you know uh, i'm not fighting against people who don't play by the rules by by, by you know and i'm still wanting to play by the rules oh you should have no, the the. i disagree the, with that the emails i got after i got uh after we re- did our investigatory committee report uh, uh one of my friends wrote me and said i knew this was going to be bad but i didn't think it could have been written by karen ann Karen Ann, who said, I'm going to pay no attention to the investigative committee report because Joe Bookman's on that committee and he's just out to get me. Well, uh, I'm sorry. I wasn't out to get Karen Ann. If anything, I I overcorrected for not bringing any personal bias or animus to that. Uh, But her actions as seen by the other two members of that committee, one of whom uh, is Rufus Craig, an attorney. No, she was not somebody who engaged in whistleblowing activity that then got her punished for doing that. Uh, I think the the more reasonable argument is she was someone trying to build a YouTube channel who knew that you one strategy for doing that quickly is by creating a lot of drama, and she fueled fueled the drama, yeah, uh, in my view. And uh, anyhow, so how do I feel? I, I'm also getting older, and I'm thinking maybe it's kind of time to sort of semi retire. You know not really running much of a campaign right now for treasurer, but I I think about it from time to time. I, I don't think I want to run for any more uh, state offices or be a state party chair again. I could see myself serving you know, on the audit committee nationally. I've done that three times. I always serve a term and take a term off. I don't think the audit committee should be consecutive terms. Uh, most recently, I was the chair of the financial audit committee. So I got to see a lot of the you know stuff that goes on inside the party that i signed an nda not to talk about Um, and you know no organization is perfect but uh, i think without sharing any details uh, i feel really good about how the libertarian party operated over the last two financial cycles i haven't seen any numbers since december of 2021 and i won't because i'm no longer on the committee Uh, and i probably won't ask to be reappointed but maybe, maybe I would do that when I'm 68 or 70, you know, in another two years, four years, something like that. What about you? Are you, are you just like, hey, Mises is taken over and it's a freight train headed to glory? Are you excited? Hell no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,
0: I, I am excited. I am excited. Um, at, the, at this point, I mean, I, I've been treated very terribly by anti-Mises people.
1: I wish they would stop that. And,
0: yeah. Um, even at this point, uh, I, I know you know some of the celebritarians will say they're unwilling to work with unreasonable people, and I understand the sentiment. Um, I I don't give up the hope though. Even just yesterday on Twitter, I was trying to reason with somebody, and uh, say, "Hey, um, you don't have to like everything anyone ever does." And if you're waiting to build a perfect party field full of everyone that you like, we're never getting anything done. There, there's certain things that are just more important than your personal uh, beliefs about one issue, and uh, e- either keep focusing on that and get squashed by the jackboot, or uh, you got to set it aside for a minute. We've got more pressing matters. I am, I am very hopeful that. Mises is everything everyone says it is at face value. I, I yeah. am buying into it. And the, the the moment that the entire movement, the the entire organization, if it were found out that it was not, I would be the first person to criticize it and admit that I was
1: wrong. I'll tell you the other thing that concerns me about anti-mesis people if you want um is they they seem to really hold people in their history and uh apparently tom woods published some stuff maybe in the 80s or early 90s that um that uh isn't easily found or available and that he doesn't say anymore and i'm like you know Are we going to hold everybody who has that light bulb movement of, wow, radical nonviolence and self-ownership, that's the libertarian vision. I'm now a libertarian. We're going to dig up stuff that they did or said before that and use it as a cudgel somehow? I'm tired of that. Um, On the other hand, I've got this friend of mine who says, look, everybody thinks these people are going to come into the Libertarian Party and they're going to become more libertarian with time well, yeah, that's kind of how it works. It used to be, what's the difference between a libertarian who's a member of the radical, what's the difference between a libertarian who's a member of the pragmatist caucus and a libertarian who's a member of the radical caucus? And the answer was about a year and a half.
0: <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. um,
1: so I, I'm hopeful for that. I certainly found my one conversation with Michael to be he was much younger than i had imagined i didn't even have an image of what he looked like before reno i didn't care um i've now uh you know get the mises caucus uh emails and updates everything i've seen coming from the chair uh and uh and most others seems not offensive uh uh, the vice chair's comments i think are disgusting and should be repudiated whatever whatever or you should go get some gay friends so you can learn that it's not about sex it's about violence. Uh, these are people who, if they went to about 13 nations on earth, could just be killed for saying they were gay. John Hospers, when he ran as our presidential nominee, couldn't campaign in some states. Uh, and I guess it's unclear whether Hospers was really gay or not, uh, but he, he was never openly gay uh, in his lifetime. But uh, it's pretty clear he was a gay man who during that campaign could have been thrown in jail just for saying I'm gay. Uh, yeah. or Or for saying I have a, photocopy of a government insignia. I think not throw you in jail for anything they want to throw you in jail for. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is, is our, our common com- enemy, which is something
0: seeing- I think we could bond over.
1: I would too. Um, I thought Spike Cohen's reformulization of the, of the bigotry language was very good. I, I, I liked, <laughs> you know, resonated with the argument that our platform should be about relations between the government and its citizens. And not relations uh, uh, between individuals, but yeah, I would I would totally go to the next convention wearing a hat that said bigotry is repugnant and irrational. I don't have any problem with that language at all. Uh, Michael Heiss came running to the back of the hall uh, right after that vote, and people were cheering the deletion of the of the of the word bigot uh, from the platform. Uh, and I overheard Michael say, this is the first organization that has taken a step away from becoming more woke. Might not be a direct quote. Michael, forgive me if I'm misquoting. Feel free to correct it. But there was this cheering of the Libertarian Party is going to start stop sliding to being more woke. And this was somehow a, a turning point away from that. And, and then I watched the interview with Angela McArdle and, and Nick Gillespie, where she said, Look, we can't have the word bigot in our platform because nobody knows what it means. All it results in is finger pointing. I'm not unsympathetic to that. And I did like the reformulated language that Spike put out. Um, on abortion, that's, that's the issue that's ripping every political party apart, right? Um, and maybe especially yeah. us. But my argument on abortion is I think life begins at conception. And I don't want a federal government so intrusive that it knows. (laughs) The federal government has no business knowing if any of my three daughters are pregnant today and tomorrow and the next day. So the the very first Libertarian Party platform in 1972 said women should have the right uh, to an abortion everywhere, anytime, any reason, for the first 100 days. I kind of like that. I thought Roe v. Wade maybe got it close to right, which is first trimester, none of the government's business. Third trimester, government acts to protect the unborn. In between, we'll leave it up to the states. That was the original of uh, of Roe v. Wade. Um, I have a good friend, uh, a married couple, both good friends, uh, who had a kind of a late-term abortion after they got the ultrasound that showed that the unborn baby only had two chambers in his heart. And uh, you don't live a, a good life with half a heart. Uh, you don't develop mentally, physically. You, you have a life of a lot of pain and suffering. And, and they lovingly chose uh, to abort. And that, that little baby lived for several hours. These are not people who did an unethical, immoral illegal thing. Um, and the government should have no business in that. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not too happy about the elimination of the of the plank, partly because when I was on the platform committee, I helped change the language. One word, but I was proud of that word. The abortion plank said something like libertarians respect views on both sides of the issue. And I was at that platform committee in Indianapolis and said, since when are there only two sides to the abortion issue? <laughs> there, there are far more than two sides. Yeah. So it got changed to libertarians respect the positions on all sides of the abortion issue. So that was my one significant contribution to that platform committee that year, and, and it got thrown out in Reno. So I'm you so, know again vigilantly curious. What's next? Are we going to have a, a anti-abortion plank proposed in twenty twenty four? I don't know. So uh, one one interesting
0: point um, that was made by Karen Ann. Uh, I, I did think this was very interesting that the plank that was put in about personal medical freedom could now be interpreted as the new pro-choice.
1: Well, she's the master of parliamentary massaging to get mm-hmm. stuff like that out where it may not have existed or been intended but i you know what praise the good no. where you find it good for karen ann
0: i like and that so i i personally don't believe the party itself should necessarily have a position uh i believe it to be a social issue that should be left up to the philosophers and the doctors and the women and the families and it but has that nothing was, to do
1: that know, was our plank that was what the plank yeah. said, was we respect uh, principal points of views on all sides. So we take it out. We're silent about it. I mean, I, I don't think I, abortion... I would, vote,
0: I would vote against a anti-abortion plank. And you Flat think most,
1: most of Mises would?
0: Um,
1: It's hard to tell. I don't know.
0: It, it's probably like the open borders <clears throat> thing. Mises is split half and half. So... You know, it, it, it's interesting because the I think the wonder number one misconception of Mises is that it's completely decentralized. And so even though Michael is, you know, chair and, you know, there is an executive committee, and all of these things. It's not like uh, Ohio Mises Caucus tells Utah what to do or any anything like that. Each state really is independent of each other, and it really does live up by that decentralized nature.
1: Has, has, um, go ahead.
0: Well, it just just the fact that there there is because of that decentralization. Then every it's it's difficult to explain that to people who are not involved, and so everyone says, uh, "Oh well, because of uh, New Hampshire's tweets, then the whole system needs to come down. The whole system doesn't need to be trusted." And it's like look yeah that was bad i'm not a fan of that but guess what i i called that out that has nothing to do with me so don't you label me with that
1: i thought in the course of that investigation the geletta jarvis had her heart in the right place long time libertarian uh very offended by some of what was going on in new hampshire uh Sincerely believed that the Libertarian National Committee was about to disaffiliate New Hampshire, and and tried to do something to keep the party together because she believed, I believe she believed, uh, not only from conversations with her but with others, that if New Hampshire was disaffiliated by the Libertarian National Committee because of those awful tweets, awful, um, that other states would then proactively disaffiliate, and, and the party would split into two parties. And, you know, the convention in Reno would look like a mess. Uh, Maybe we'd have 30 states that the LNC recognized or some such thing. And so then, you know, Joe Bishop Hinchman did whatever Joe Bishop Hinchman did, which I don't really know what that was, because he deleted all of the emails uh, before he resigned. Uh, And emails that didn't belong to him, emails that were sent to chair at LP.org, those belong to the organization. They should have been passed on to the new chair. Yeah. And nobody.
0: necessarily a good look.
1: (laughs) No, I've called it criminal and he's an attorney who could sue me. So that's a little far out there. Joe Bishop Hinchman at LP.org. Yeah, he could probably do whatever he wants with those emails, but not chair at LP.org. And then Ken Molman as acting chair for a month didn't look to notice anything had been deleted while lying to the investigative committee that staff were vetting those emails for sensitive personnel issues and attorney-client privilege. Well, attorney-client privilege is ridiculous. If Joe was doing his law office work at chair at LP.org, he's the one that violated that. There's no reason we should protect those, but sensitive personnel issues. Okay. And then Whitney becomes chair. She's got a dumpster fire. So it takes her a couple (laughs) of weeks So we were six weeks in, and and I was a raving loon being held back by by Pat Tixon and and Rufus Craig. I wanted to write the committee and said, your resolution that we shall be granted access is not being followed. You have staff in defiance of this. You have other members of the LNC in defiance of your resolution. That's grounds for being expelled from the party, right, defying the will of the LNC. Karen Ann was one of them, because Joe Bookman's on the committee, and oh my god. what Joe Bishop Hinchman did was was uh, was something we'll never know because the, the, the written record was destroyed and other people wouldn't talk to us. Um, and I think he was doing what he thought was best to keep the bigots out, the people who might hate him for being gay. I don't know uh, what he was doing, but uh, I have no respect for you just resign, take your football and go home and you close down the whole caucus and you get everybody to just condemn the party and quit. I don't think Mises has done anything quite that horrible yet. I'm concerned that they might. I'm concerned that I might get to a point where I say, "Mm, no, I can't. I want all my friends to know I'm no longer a supporter of the National Party because some horrible thing happened. But but that hadn't happened yet. You know, and, and Josh can say some crazy stuff on the side. I guess Karen Ann can do whatever insanity she wants to do on her YouTube videos why anybody supports that is a little bit of a mystery to me um but um you know free speech everybody's personal lives doesn't reflect on the party as a whole be interesting to see who do you think is going to get hired as the new executive director
0: you know i i don't even know yet
1: i, I mean I, uh, is it going to be I, michael I heiss is michael heiss going to take tyler harris's position um that would, would be shake, interesting. That would shake things up. You think David Smith will be the presidential nominee in twenty twenty four? He'll beat out Justin Amash. Maybe a third uh, person will show I, up. I don't know. I don't know. Um,
0: be, before we started this interview, I did uh, I did interview um, Mike Termont and uh, he's planning on running on the Libertarian ticket. And um uh, so as far as Justin Amash I think I
1: I think I got a postcard from that guy, right? Yeah. That probably. is running for the presidential nomination. Guy came out before mm-hmm. Reno. Never yep. heard of him.
0: Yeah, I uh but, had interviewed him just earlier today and uh I I'm I'm impressed. Um I don't understand the uh the Justin Amash love, not that he should be hated. However, uh he hasn't always been libertarian and personally just because he held or is the highest ranking libertarian in the party currently, that doesn't mean he's the best person to be at the front of the party right now. Um, That that's one thing I want to stop seeing regardless of who's in charge is we just put recognizable names up front just because it's a recognizable name instead of the most qualified uh, or principled or whatever libertarian up front who would actually do a good job. Um, The the one thing I am sure of, uh, as far as any of the Mises caucus or any anything, is Angela's ability to get everything in order. I can't make a prediction as far as how well everything else is going to go. Um, but that's that's one thing I'll, I'll put my reputation
1: on. Because of her effectiveness as chair of the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles?
0: Not well, not just that. Um, it's. I, I've seen her work um i i've seen her ability to to take control and lead and uh she has and i i will also be critical of this if it didn't happen um but she's said one but no more than two terms so you know
1: yeah i mean you know she she or mises endorsed karen ann which doesn't play well for me uh, yeah, on the that, other hand, a
0: struggle behind the scenes. I'll tell you that.
1: Well, someday I'd love to read all the emails around that. If I get appointed to another committee and nobody deletes <laughs> them all, I might have a more favorable view of Mises, having looked inside of that. Uh, but there was nobody more competent or experienced who showed up in Reno. I mean, John's probably very good. I think Tim Hagen did great minutes as combination secretary and treasurer uh tim didn't get any reward for that at all he didn't even get to give the treasurer's report because of the change in agenda i didn't get to give the audit committee report because the agenda got changed um but i don't care it's just stupid um so yeah i mean i i will be vigilantly curious to see how the board unifies and, and relates and, and is it true i mean this is just in the world of rumor for me right now but i had heard that angela's pregnant and due to deliver around christmas that's news to me all right maybe it's just edit that out if you want maybe it's just total hearsay but i do have concerns about what happens if joshua becomes chair um that um, probably is a direction i would be concerned about, but you know, sometimes when you get the captain's seat, you, you have kind of a change in the way you view the world.
0: So I am, I am always op- optimistic as far as any of it goes, and I'm not going to condemn somebody first thing until something happens. However, once a pattern emerges, I'm not going to deny that pattern. Yeah. And I, and I it- think that's the big concern. Uh, Even with Jeremy Kaufman, um, do I like everything he's done? No. Um, I also do believe that people are uh, or, or have the ability for redemption. And if that's who he is as a person, as some of his critics say, then once that evidence comes out, I'll agree. Up until now, I haven't seen it. However, he has crossed boundaries and that's not okay.
1: Yeah, the, so, Nick, Nick Gillespie asked him about uh, some tweet around kill, if a thousand trans people were killed every day, but we had zero taxes, we'd be better off. So I yeah. listened to his explanation of that, which was convoluted and, and uh, non persuasive. But I, I, I got to tell you what he's
0: saying, but it wasn't a good tweet. And you can make a point like that without
1: saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's like handing a loaded gun to your opponent. Why, why do mm-hmm. that? It was like yeah. Karen Ann saying people opposed to her should go fuck themselves with a Barb dildo. All right, let's give the tweets from the national party secretary to the, the candidates running against Marshall Burt in Wyoming and see how Wyoming voters respond to, let's put the guy in who's national party secretary saying this crazy stuff, or let's just vote Republican. I mean, that, that does damage to our candidates, right? Yeah. At least it sure seems like it does to me. And then there's the other side of the argument, which is our candidates are getting 1% of the vote. Let's stop doing what we've always been doing. Well, I'm sorry, in Wyoming, you actually got a guy elected to the state house. He got more than 1%. Let's not do things that hand a loaded gun to his opponents. Please don't do that. If you can help no. spread that argument around Mises, that would be a good thing. Um, also, you talk about whether I want to be a libertarian or not. I think we have reached a... Milestone, a tipping point in the party where the future history will be fundamentally different than our past history. In that, if you identify as a Republican or a Democrat, you're not identifying as a supporter of the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee. There's a lot more to those parties than their national committees, which exist for the single purpose of organizing a convention. That's all the committee does. And and I think the Libertarian Party is about to to move to uh, having a Libertarian National Committee that has some competition from other uh, nonprofits or state organizations or regional organizations like the Frontier Project. So I, I think you don't need to resign from all things libertarian. You can find that other libertarian group that maybe you're more aligned with, and maybe the LNC will start to see itself as less of a Recruit candidates, mm, have committees that evaluate messaging and advertising, and 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 in charge of the whole show, to a committee that exists to not get in trouble with the federal election commission and run a convention. That's probably enough for a volunteer board. Um, so, but again, I come back to vigilantly curious. Uh, I'd say part of me is kind of excited to see what might happen with. Ron Paul revolution number two um, part of a larger part of me, though, is fearful that it it could go down a, a, a bigoted, racist, anti-gay, uh, anti-social liberties, sort of economic conservatism that that may draw in more people and more money. I, I don't know. <laughs> We've been at this two hours and I'm happy to go for two more. I'm just getting it's still daylight out. Um, I love these kind of interviews. I, I, you know,
0: um. Honestly, I, I was really excited about this. And this is why I, I really enjoy talking to you. Because I, I am some, the new guard, uh, the, the Mises. You're a lot of the old guard. However, this is, in my opinion, a little bit of bridging that gap that we can both learn from each other. And I, I think this is more important for the future of the party than anything else. Because I can understand the uh, the definite concerns of even anti-Mises people. I I think those people are irrational and repugnant. But you know, um, any anyone who is cautious or curious or skeptical, I I get it. So am I. Um, it it is just what it is, and I I think we do need to. Uh, really just bridge these gaps if we're ever going to be or do anything
1: yeah in part it's bridging gaps and it's part educating each other uh about values and, and then it's also getting feedback about what freaking works we're a political party yeah. we're not a purist libertarian thought party uh we're, we're not a debate club or a a a gathering of crazy people every two years who pretend to run candidates, we're now <laughs> um, a political party that's run uh, two ex governors for president, uh, a sitting member two sitting members of the United States House and Ron Paul and Bob Barr um, <laughs> and we haven't even talked about the bar campaign. Has Mises done anything as offensive as the bar campaign? Uh, <laughs> no. I don't think so. I, uh, I'll tell you this and I, I I'm going to share it openly now for the first time. I voted for Bob Barr in Denver in 2008. Um, I was excited. I was a Steve Cubby, uh, Cubby, K-U-B-B-Y loyalist. I really liked Steve. He had been in jail fighting for, uh, cannabis legalization. He had, uh, adrenal cancer and it was the only effective medication. And he won over the hearts of various sheriffs and, and was at the front lines. And when Cubby, uh, Lost in one of the rounds of voting, I switched to uh, Bob Barr. The other alternative was Mary Ruart, and I I thought she had lost the debate. I I really do go and I listen. But having voted for Bob Barr in, in Denver, and this is by way of confession, I could not bring myself to vote for him that November. It was such a horrible campaign, horrible. And I felt the same way about Bill Weld saying, if you live in a state where where voting libertarian might cause Trump to win your state, vote for Hillary. No, you don't get to do that. Just mm-hmm. no. And um, uh, so I guess I have some boundaries around that, that kind of stuff. I can't imagine 2024 with Dave Smith as the presidential nominee. Um, how different is that than Vernon Supreme with the boot on his head? I guess I'll learn. I guess I'll see. Uh, but what I said to Nick Gillespie when he asked me about that was, uh, I don't know, Zelensky was a comedian, right? <laughs> I'm a huge fan of this guy. He he's mastering Thomas <laughs> Jefferson and Winston Churchill and George Patton and Genghis Khan, maybe all in one. Uh, what what a what a brilliant uh, media performance uh, th- that leader of, of Ukraine is putting on in terms of. Of fighting for self-determinism and and liberties in Ukraine, and I I know Ukraine was a corrupt government. Yeah, but you know, who would have thought a comedian would have stood up to Putin like this? Yeah, I don't know that Dave Smith is any Zelensky, but maybe we'll all get a chance to find out. I mean,
0: Uh, you never know. And uh, I'll tell you why I would support a Dave Smith presidency or a Dave Smith candidacy run. Yeah is my idea is that there there's no way in hell we're ever going to get the presidency it's way too corrupt i i believe that at this point it's it's a marketing campaign for us to run a presidential candidate and at that point we need the most effective messengers now personally i would like to see a dave smith and spike cohen ticket only because they message both uh, at the same high level but in completely opposite ways there there was a recently a podcast uh b bph or something and it have larry sharp spike cohen dave smith and uh uh who am i i i can't remember but the the party's best messengers uh on a massive platform and i think In any recent memory, that's done more for libertarianism than pretty much anything else.
1: Yeah, it's not entirely a marketing effort to run presidential candidate uh, or ticket. It's also a cheaper path to ballot access in a lot of states. Yeah. So we got to do it because it's cheaper to get the votes for president, qualify for ballot access, than it is to go do a signature gathering campaign. My friend Bill is out now working. 12, 16-hour days gathering signatures in Illinois, uh, with a, a tremendous hurdle there to get not just himself as a Senate candidate running as a libertarian, but every libertarian running as a libertarian in Illinois on that, on that ballot. And that's a hard row to hoe. Uh row to hoe, not road, whatever. Um, so I, I think we should be strategic about that and, and look at the presidential campaign as as where it's cost effective and, getting us ballot access. Um, and you're right. We're not going to win the presidency. And even if we did, it wouldn't make any difference. We're going to suddenly get libertarian legislation out of a Republican Democrat controlled Congress, or suddenly yeah. the Supreme Supreme court's going to start acting more libertarian. No. Um, I had lunch with D Frank Robinson, you know, who was at the 72 convention and hadn't come back. He'd been to a couple in the seventies and then he didn't come back until 2016 he was horrified by bill weld as well and um frank was adamant we got to stop running people for for president putting all our resources there we need to focus on a couple of u.s house raises and get a libertarian elected to the house and yeah justin Damash changed his affiliation from republican to libertarian but he didn't get elected as a libertarian
0: exactly
1: um I thought his speech in Reno was wonderful, and I thought the behavior of Karen Ann and her team of counters behind him was outrageous. Can you? Can you? Did I don't know if you watched the video, but there's like the three stooges running around behind him. Gail Lightfoot, Lightfoot, I think, out of California, got to a mic and and you know apologized to Justin, and so there was an embarrassing display. I agree, and, and I thought it was intentional, but maybe that's too too far. But can you imagine if Dave Smith had been at that podium or Ron Paul had been at that podium or Tom Woods had been at the podium, that those people wouldn't have stopped what they were doing and paid attention? The way they treated Justin Amash was, to me, very offensive. Um, I agree with that. But I'm not unsympathetic to the argument that he's not the highest office holder. He's not. I think Marshall Bird is or Andre Maru from Alaska. These are people who got elected running under the libertarian label and served in a state house. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled that Justin Amash gave me the ability to go to house.gov and and look at the seating chart and see a sea of blue and a sea of red and one little gold dot. Good for him.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: But, but, um, I don't know that the next step for him should be running for president as the Libertarian nominee. You know, maybe he needs to run for the U.S. House again in, in Michigan or the U.S. Senate again, or or even the state house as a big L Libertarian. I completely Um, agree. uh, So then, you know, who's better than Dave Smith? Uh, I I still think I would, again, I will go to that convention and listen to the two of them debate. And I'll be open about where my vote's gonna go, I would imagine, based on what I know now and my past behavior, that's almost certainly how I'm gonna behave in 2024 if I'm even a delegate. but who else is out there? You know, or is Mark Cuban going to show up, say, "Hey, I'm now a libertarian and I'm going to put a uh, billion dollars into my campaign if you give me your nomination." I think even Mises would roll over for that, right?
0: Uh there would, there would be some people that would uh say hell no, period. Um I think a lot would, you know. Yeah. I I it's it's hard to speak for them. Um, you know, obviously not one libertarian speaks for all libertarians, but I think a lot of people would be sympathetic
1: to that i would not because mark cuban and i were classmates at indiana university in 1979 (laughs) uh, hot take i I still have trauma over that a core case study case that i wrote and he took credit for
0: Uh. but uh, that's my
1: that's my mark cuban comment mark if you're out there call me i'd I'd love to talk to you about that (laughs) um he owned a bar he he was gone he wasn't he didn't write at any rate um and you know story for another time i let it go i didn't go in and talk to the to the professor or anything i just i didn't care i was reading atlas shrugged that year or that semester so i was more into ayn rand i was and that was another thing going back to how did you become a libertarian it was partly the flag and then also my friend said well if you like the the moon is a harsh mistress you should read atlas shrugged and uh i i took about a month off from most of my classes and studies just to dig my way through everything i and rand had ever written Uh, and yeah i guess i feel the same way about objectivists and rand as i do libertarians you know uh rand was nuts the the whole affair with nathaniel brandon and asking permission of her husband and and doing it in the apartment that frank o'connor lived in who does that who (laughs) how cold and unempathetic and and self-focused do you have to be and then I can barely stand to read Atlas Shrugged anymore because of the glorification of the cigarette. I want a version of Atlas Shrugged with no tobacco, no cigars, no cigarettes. Maybe you could change it to where they're smoking pot. I might be okay with that. But Ran, you know, died of lung cancer. She had one lung removed and then struggled to live a little while longer and died a horrible death. Well, glorifying the Like a spark in a man's mind, there's the point of light at the end of a cigarette, one reflecting the, no, this is nuts. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, when you look at any organization uh, or individual, it's it's easy to be uh, critical. But when you cross into name calling and condemning supporters and holding people in their history like they could never have a moment of enlightenment and change, that's not that's not libertarianism as i know it uh, you know uh yeah and um uh it'd be nice if dave also ran for some other office at a state level in two years before well to no two years it'll be our presidential nominee so he's, yeah he's not going to be able to do that but I tell you what, I enjoy our conversations I, and, and I'm happy to go. Yeah. We're now at two hours and nine minutes. I don't know if any listeners are left, but I'm just <laughs> feeling, uh, I'm feeling healthier and happier and more alert than I was when we first started. I miss lecturing in college. I miss people yeah. taking notes on what I have to say. And I, and I feel heard by you and I feel respected by you. And, and by and large, that's been my experience of, of everybody I've met who is a Mises loyalist. Yeah. Um, but i mean uh,
0: i i wouldn't go as far as saying i'm a loyalist because uh you know if wrong happens they're gonna fucking hear it
1: yeah <laughs> i um i'll go off on another tangent for a minute since you're not saying we need to end this yet
0: um, i uh,
1: we can go as long as you would like <laughs> uh well probably not more than another hour at most maybe 15 or 20 minutes but i, I was before i was a, a, a volunteering so much time to the libertarian party i did a lot of volunteering to the boy scouts of america Um, a lot of national conferences a lot of training a lot of literature development a lot of time a lot of money and um, i became very opposed to the organization when they conflated being gay with being a pedophile and they banned gay people because all gay people want to have sex with young scouts and um, that's wrong uh and 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 then over the course of time since i refused to accept their national distinguished service award so i was selected as one of a few dozen people every other year they give out a national so i refused to go get it because i'm like i'm done i, I don't want to belong to an organization i want scouting to be as inclusive as my high school theater you know um no you don't get to get bash people uh, or tell an eagle scout that and comes out and says i'm gay that you're no longer welcome in scouting it's stupid and other people were leaving steven spielberg you know could have been teaching movie making merit badge or whatever hey. so i left and then and then they uncover through these uh, class action lawsuits the fact that for three generations The executives at the national headquarters of the Boy Scouts were covering up serial child molesters, thousands of them, Uh, and then and the attorneys find 82,000 victims, and they're proposing a 3.2 billion dollar settlement in bankruptcy to try to get some compensation out to the ones who are still alive. Now, friends in scouting are like, "Oh, they made it all up; it's false reports." Well, I don't think so. There's probably some of that, but I don't think that's the bulk. But look at all the people who grew old and died who were abused in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s. They never got to see this ugliness come up. And out of that, I started looking at the scout law differently. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. It's a hypnotic suggestion for disarming a young man. You need to trust me. You've got to be loyal to me. Uh, you know, you need to be obedient now. And, and so there's this, and now the similarity I'm going to draw to the Libertarian Party is, you don't need to be loyal to people. The loyalty is to the principles. Uh, and you don't need to trust people who are asking you to do things that you know violate those principles. That's not a breaking of a trust. Uh, that, that's being a whistleblower. So I'm still listened to by some people in scouting, uh, a handful still, uh, because I I sort of have proved to have a certain level of prophecy ability in terms of what was going to happen to scouting. And it's certainly suffering. COVID, membership is tanking, finances are a mess, the pension program is underfunded, and there's this huge lawsuit thing going on. And I said, we need to change the scout law. I, I, I think you need to get rid of a scout as obedient and replace it with a scout as a whistleblower. He seeks the help of others when confronted with immoral illegal activity. Well, Let's bring that to the Libertarian Party as well. Let's not be loyal to caucus or loyal to a, uh, an individual candidate. Let's be loyal to those self-evident principles that arrive from the philosophy of natural law that can then be expressed in that part of philosophy that deals with politics. Uh, and let's be loyal to that. And I think natural law also expresses itself in terms of morality and ethics, and maybe even epistemology and eschatology and the whole ball of wax. But I I find when I talk about being a libertarian and and the principles of non-initiation of aggression and right of self-ownership, productivity, property, it gives me a real sense of inner peace, like uh, uh, more of a religion almost than a political party. Um, And I hesitate to say that, but, but that's, you ask me who I am or why I'm about that. I've become very interested because of my experience in scouting with don't be loyal to people, be loyal to principle. Don't trust others, trust your discernment of of the principles. Don't be obedient, Uh, be a whistleblower. Um, And we talked earlier and and now it's two and a half hours in or whatever it is. We'll we'll
0: wrap up soon.
1: The other thing that I give a lot of time or have in the past given time and energy to is researching hard evidence that we're not alone in the cosmos. And I think most of the UFO field is fraudsters. I was
0: waiting to get to this.
1: Finally got there. Most of the UFO field is fraudsters and grifters and mentally ill people. But, you know, I I had several conversations with the sixth man to walk on the moon, Apollo, uh, 15, 14 astronaut, um, Ed Mitchell, Apollo 14 with uh, Alan Shepard. Uh, sixth man to walk on the moon, PhD from MIT. Um, who has, you can find YouTube videos of Ed Mitchell. He's now passed away saying, I've been privileged enough to have been briefed on the fact that our government has recovered non-human created technology and attempted to reverse engineer it. Wow. One of the 12 guys to walk on the moon says this. That catches my attention. Now there's the videos out of the Nimitz uh, and and the the Tic Tacs doing whatever they're doing. Now you've had congressional hearings on the UFO issue, just 90 minutes, but it's it's kind of a breaking of that ice. You got Marco Rubio uh, saying that he's received some classified briefings that caused his interest in the whole UFO, UAP extraterrestrial thing to take off. And so if there's something I want to leave your listeners with, the one or two of them that are still hanging in here, If there is life across the cosmos and it's developed high technology uh, and it's traveling around and and observing or or minimally interacting with humanity, in my view, by definition, they have to be libertarian. You, You don't get access to the technology that can cause you to be able to travel the cosmos and do that. Unless you have the non-initiation of aggression principle as a core value, because we tend to use our high technology to blow each other up. Uh, Even today, I never thought I would live in my lifetime again to to feel that I'm threatened by some asshole somewhere (laughs) setting off a (laughs) nuke. What good is it going to do to set off a nuke or two or five or how many ever Russia feels it should be able to set off to get parity with the United States? which you know, killed a bunch of innocent people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in my view. Um, not necessary for that war. And again, I know it's an, a, a thing that can be argued about, but but look at the bigger point. If the aliens are traveling the cosmos, they're not burning petroleum to get here. Um, they're using some other sort of energy source that that defies our current understanding of physics. And yet our best pilots and our military officers on ships with radar And forward-looking infrared radar, FLIR, as well as traditional radar and others, they're seeing things with no aerodynamic structure, no heat signature, no exhaust, outperforming our best military pilots by orders of magnitude. They dive underwater, they take off and fly through the air, and they probably go to outer space. And, And this is what we're now having our best trained Pilots and, and military uh, officials testify to you. Bob Salas, a missileer, uh, Minot, North Dakota. Minot? Maybe not Minot, but anyway, one of our missileers, Bob Salas, in the 60s. So his whole flight of missiles shut down while the people above ground, he was down in one of the, the egg shaped things underground, the control center for these missiles that our government has seen fit to fund. Oh my gosh. But anyway, <laughs> don't want to go down that tangent. Stick on the main point. That people above time. saying, hey, there's a flying saucer here. It's shining a red light down and all the the missiles going. I wrote a book called UFOs and Nukes. And I think some wiser than us, libertarian, non-initiating violence, life that might be out there um, that has also seen the self-evident truth of natural law and the right of self-ownership, all of that, is probably curious enough to monitor what the monkeys are doing now that they found the matches in the kitchen. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I I wish we'd freaking grow up. Um, I went to Washington, D.C. for something called the X Conference. And uh, there I met the Minister of Defense for Canada, Paul Hellyer, talked about evidence the Canadians had. I met Dr. Mitchell again. By the way, Dr. Mitchell, this is so perfect. Uh, sixth man to walk on the moon grew up in Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> wow. Go go read up on that Interesting. one. Interesting. Um, so I met you know, people of high rank and station. This is not Bubba with a beer in a boat who claims some Palladian council has channeled some message for humanity. I just can't. Yeah. It's just crazy. Maybe it's true, but no. What I'm interested in is military pilots with coincident radar returns and FLIR video and craft that's outperforming, fascinated by that. And I I think it's not unreasonable for all of us who are libertarians to conclude that if there's intelligent life in the universe, it's had a lot of time to evolve. It's got to see the truth of of natural law as applied to relationships. And and in my view, that's kind of the way they're behaving with us. Um, I also have had two friends. Uh, One was the chief briefing officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's now passed away. Uh, but he told me um, he can't talk about this subject as much as he would like to have talked about it He'd go to a place worse than Leavenworth. Well, why is that? There's nothing to it. Uh, oh, yeah. And he said, nobody's going to come save us. We've, we've got to evolve out of this constant death and destruction and starvation and, and somehow unify. And, and, and once we are able to travel to the next star over, then that life that's out there will will more openly uh, contact us. Um, I think that's true. I also talked to a friend of mine who was the chief of medical operations in Houston for NASA. He said the exact same thing. As much as I might like to talk about this, uh, I could go a place worse than Le- Leavenworth. And I said, well, have you seen the, the videos from the Nemets of these, you know, no aerodynamic structures, no exhaust things that are outperforming? They call them tic-tacs, but they're like, yeah. 60 foot long hot water heaters. He said, You mean the stuff that dives under the water and takes off and does circles around our aircraft? And that's so why I said, Yeah, you've seen the video. He says, No, I haven't seen the video. I said, Well, how do you know about it? He said, You know, before he joined NASA, he was in the Air Force a pilot. It's because I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm like, What? <laughs> wow. So you know we're not alone in the universe. And he said, Joe, you need to stop worrying about whether we're alone in the universe or not and get right with Jesus he's a Christian
0: interesting
1: um we need to stop killing each other on this planet and we need to get universal food and housing and clothing and education we need we need the abundant economy that can do that through nonviolent charitable giving and then maybe we could think about where we belong in the cosmos because who would want us for a neighbor right now what do you imagine if there is life in the cosmos and it's peaceful libertarian life what does visiting planet earth look like right now it probably looks a lot (laughs) like visiting the donbass region for a vacation
0: a bunch of savages
1: we're pissing in our own nest and and we're fighting with each (laughs) other over who's the more pure libertarian (sighs) makes me kind of sad makes me feel a little hopeless but I, i did not think i would ever see uh, congressional hearings and military officers taking the UFO subject seriously in my lifetime
0: you know what I think is uh honestly interesting I was just talking about this is that the these things are happening and so many people don't care they they just aren't even reacting to it it's like do you do you guys see what's going on right now and nope nope they would rather take some facebook poll on how you know like what kind of potato they are
1: there's a great south park episode where the aliens show up but the kids are all too busy playing their video game to notice (laughs) you remember that episode yep that's oh yeah spot spot on yep Yep. um so i don't know And, and then you know is is this all there is you know your heart stops beating your brain stops firing neurons and everything goes black. And that's it. Mathematically.
0: I, 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 I don't think it's possible. Mathematically.
1: My father-in-law tonight is dying. Uh, He may not last through the night. I don't know, but he's on hospice. Sorry to hear that. It's okay. He's a hundred and a half. (laughs) He's lived a pretty good life up to the last few days, weeks, maybe. But, um, brilliant guy. He was literally a rocket scientist for Hercules, chemical engineer, Uh, brilliant guy. But, you know, my mother was a surgical nurse. My dad was a physician. Hospice is now caring for my father-in-law. All of these people, um, uh, who've been present for people dying, uh, or having a near-death experience and recovering, uh, are pretty, if you if you get into that career in that community, they're all very confident that there's something more going on here. And I'd like yeah. to believe that whatever that greater thing is that's going on is pleased by people who choose to remain loyal to libertarian principles of non-initiation of violence and letting others have the right of ownership of their own body. Zero slavery in any hint of it. I think that's important beyond just our political battles during our lifetime. I think it's important to our character development, our spirituality. I think it's important to the evolution of the planet to get to a point where we might be invited into some broader community of high tech, peaceful life that's out there. And Really, when you think about it, even on earth, the only yeah. people that really have access to super high tech uh, and are, are, are pretty peaceful at heart are libertarians, right here, yeah. right now. So I think you either get that in the cosmos or it would have all blown up by now.
0: Libertarianism is the way of the future. Yeah, it's the, and, it's the natural order of things and we need to restore it. It was I stolen it, from us and we need to take it back.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in the broader history of things, it's a rare flicker of liberty. You know, no. we're not as bad off as we were under the priests and kings and and conquest driven people like Genghis Khan. Uh, I've been to Mongolia a few times, we could do another hour on that, but um, but yeah, in terms of, of real human liberty, uh, the founders of this nation and in some way the civil rights movement of, of my lifetime uh, has created more liberty for more people and, and it's at constant risk of, of going dark again. Yeah. I don't think Mises is the main driving force for it going dark again. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, that, that is the hope and anyone who's fighting against that I think that says more about them than uh, anything else because like I said I'm hopeful I could be wrong but if I'm not and it is the next big step up then you're going to be really <laughs> kicking yourself for not being a part of it and trying to fight back against it so uh, I, I remember every single person who called me a Nazi just saying that
1: well, at least then, you're uh, not a, at least you're not an elder abusing psychopath.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. And, and on, the, on that, I think we're going to wrap up, um, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I want to get you back on. Uh, th- this was honestly just so much fun, and honestly, I'm really excited to uh, continue working with you and everyone else in the Utah Libertarian Party because we've got lightning in a bottle here.
1: I feel the same way barry's done a really good job of of healing and and keeping people focused on the, the on the prize um and i want to thank you for letting me do my little ufo riff here at the end i'd actually forgotten about it for most of the talk i really do believe that i really do believe it's important to be loyal to libertarian principles uh both in terms of the evolution of the planet and uniting with life in the cosmos but also in terms of at least for me my personal spirituality and connecting to whatever loving creator is kind of watching what we're doing and hoping for the best. Uh, If everybody could see the wisdom of non-initiation of aggression and self-ownership and the economy that could grow from that to get us to really a place where everybody gets free healthcare and food and housing and, you know, every deserving person through private charity, um, that would be a world that uh, I would like to pass on to my two granddaughters and the world I'm afraid they're going to inherit looks a lot different. So whatever we can do to make life better for Emma B and Madeline, I'm up for. Yeah, And, and hopefully this, thing, hopefully this show moved it forward a millimeter. I, you know,
0: I'm trying to get that Overton window back and add to the conversation. So, you know. So what's this, the record
1: for your podcast for longest broadcast?
0: I, I think this is it. Because I think, uh, yep, uh, two hours, 10 minutes, I think was the last one.
1: So. so we're at two hours and 30 in another nine seconds so yep. what i would love to do is maybe come back on and, and have a debate with other people or if you want to do a one-on-one yeah. this was fun for me too
0: yeah like i said it will definitely get you back on i'm doing more utah stuff and uh like i said we've got lightning in a bottle here and we need to showcase it uh point, point in case this entire interview and show so uh on that note Thank you to everyone who has uh, actually made it to this point in the interview. Uh, it, I hope it was as entertaining for you as it was for me. You can always check us out at risetoliberty.com forward slash links that will bring up the uh, Liberty link tree and give you links to everywhere we are on the internet. We have just paired with and the two-party system network here on YouTube. And uh, we've also paired with regional prime television, which is exclusively on a Roku device. So if you have a Roku, go add regional prime television for all your uh, libertarian and uh, outside of the uh, mainstream news and entertainment, uh, just right at your fingertips. And uh, until next time, I hope you guys stay free. Live long and prosper.